Jackson in the backfield on a play fake. A lot of time. Deep balls available. So is Brandon Cooks. Touchdown, Saints. You could certainly make a case that we just finished the worst week in sportscasters history. And um, I wanted to start and apologize because I got a lot of emails from people who were upset or frustrated. Um, a little hot there? A little bit. A little hot. Uh, I got a few emails from people who were frustrated and actually got a pretty nasty email from a publicist. Uh, I don't have any answers. We'll see if Don does. I don't think he does, though. I don't. No, I think it was something uh, We woke control. up one day and... There was no podcasts on the server anymore. Right. I mean, they were... There was three, actually, for some reason. Yeah, they were all kind of there. Like, if you went in a different way, uh, you could see them, but you couldn't play any of them, and it didn't recognize them as MP3s. And then one day, they just worked again, sort of. But uh, I don't know what happened. I don't think it... I mean, it definitely wasn't anything on our end. We pay for this. It's not a lot, but I mean, we pay to have this right podcast hosted right and i mean if we can't guarantee at least that they're going to be there we're going to have to start paying someone else right because we do ask a lot of other people and we can't ask that of them if we can't at least promise that the podcast will be there for people to listen to so all we can do is apologize though we did everything we could to fix it and as soon as it was fixed we put them back up but I really want to apologize to Lana Berry. Oh, I, I said it wrong that time, didn't I? Yeah. To Lana, Lana Berry. Yep. And to, jeez, uh, who else was on last week? Uh, Brian Curtis. Curtis. My yeah. friend Brian Curtis. So I want to apologize to them. But the podcast did get up on Saturday. And we're going to continue to promote it all week. Right. As if it sort of wasn't up. Right. So. All right. Let's start the show. It is season five, episode 27. August 26, 2015, on a day when I went out to the mailbox, I said, it feels like football. So we will talk football today. Uh, Aaron Schatz from footballoutsiders.com is going to join us. Also, Adam Lazarus, the author of a new book called Hail to the Redskins, Gibbs, the Diesel, the Hogs, Angela Rippon, and the Glory Days of DC's Football Dynasty. It's not actually Angela Rippon's not actually part of it. I threw that in. <laughs> um, he's going to join us to talk about his new book. His last book was about uh, Steve Young and Joe Montana and their rivalry as quarterbacks of the 49ers. He's also co-hosted the show in the past. Um, and when Don is fired for phone-related noises here in a few <laughs> minutes, he'll be the new permanent co-host. Uh uh, but uh, Aaron will join us, or Adam will join us, Aaron will join us. Also, we might get some time with the masked man um, from Grantland to talk about SummerSlam. Oh, okay. uh, we'll see for sure about that. If not, I think he'll just be on next week. Uh, but we'll see how that all... There's a certain level of fluidity, if that's a word, this week. Sure. But I wouldn't necessarily call it... A fluid situation. No, I wouldn't go that far. Okay. All right. Three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. 
I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. We always encourage people to draft as far into yes. the offseason as they can. So you know this guy is in a corner facing the wall crying right now. He's a guy who drafted August 1st. <laughs> he picked Foster in the first round. Yep. Jordy Nelson in the second. Yep. Benjamin in the third. And later, Kevin White was his big steal. Sure. Sleeper of the draft. Yeah, there has to be that guy somewhere. And now he's just hoping to get something out of Foster to salvage what's left of the team he drafted in early August. And obviously, Jordy Nelson is the new name. Uh, just a bummer of an injury again. Yep. Um, I kind of was joking, and I don't think people understood the fact about uh, Kevin Benjamin going down and what that meant to my team. Um, and I'm sure, but I'm sure there's a Bears fan who sort of was wrestling with the same feelings, uh, and now it's a new guy. And I don't know. There's something wrong with the preseason and the way things work, but. Then again, there's always going to be some preseason, right? So that means there's going to be some injuries during it. And there's really nothing you can do about that. Yeah, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, I think. Like, what do you do? Do you just have the Stars not play at all? I mean, then are they not in shape? Do you have them practice more in the offseason? I don't know what you do with ACLs, especially. like They're not getting hit. Now, I don't know if we're getting more ACLs because the hits are going higher. But neither of these ACLs were results of hits to the knee. Right. right. Now, there was a little bit of controversy. There w- it was flagged. Uh, the Sam Bradford play. Did yeah, you I see didn't that? see it. No, I heard about it. It was a cheap shot at his knees, no doubt. Yeah. There's no doubt. And I don't understand why Suggs thinks he needs to take a cheap shot at Sam Bradford's knee. They're not in the same division. They're not even in the same conference. Right. They're not rivals. I don't understand that part of it. The league's why you would do that. The league came out and said that they were okay with it, right? With the non-call. Well, they have no. I thought it was flagged. Oh, it was flagged. Okay, maybe they were okay with. I the, think they didn't fine him. Right. Okay, that's what I saw then. Um, he hit him low. Yeah. You know, it's the rule that they put in when Brady tore his, basically. Oh, okay. You got to like get up, reestablish yourself. Whatever, and yeah. I mean, he absolutely went to take a shot at his knee. In my mind. Yeah. And he pretty much said as much when he his quote after the game was something like, if you're going to want to run read option with your quarterback who hurt his knees the last two years, you got to expect it. That was yeah. basically his quote. I'm paraphrasing. Right. No, I did hear that. Yeah. Um, That's just ugh. It wouldn't help in this type of situation, but uh, I don't know. I mean, you don't want quarterbacks going down, right? Through so, the stars of your league. Maybe you redshirt him through the preseason. Don't, don't take know. cheap shots. I don't know. Yeah. You guys are a union together. I don't. I can't imagine Sam Bradford ever did anything to throw Suggs. <laughs> no, he's kind of known for this too, Suggs. So the Steelers met with Michael Vick today. Yeah, that's odd. Why? I don't know. Ben how, Ben gets hit a lot. Or how he how could Michael pass, Vick but, help them? Yeah, I don't know. That's questionable. The Texans named Brian Hoyer their starter over Ryan Mallett. If you're watching Hard Knocks, you kind of assume that was coming. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the film crew seemed to know that. So. But I mean. I don't know. That, if you're a Texans fan, you're like, that's right. We got it right. That's the guy, Team Hoyer. I don't know. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like 50 cents of one or 50 cents of the other. Sure. Yeah, I'm actually – I know the Bills quarterback situation is a mess, but 
I still have an unknown a little bit in Tyrod Taylor to pull for. Uh, I'm not sure Hoyer or Mallet represent any real hope that one of them is going to just emerge as some Now it's got to be somewhat of an unknown, though. I mean, has he ever been a committed yeah, full-time I starter? I guess not, no. I don't know. No. But he's just, you know, trading one unknown for another. I mean, sure. Not like, not like Bills fans are like, damn, we could add Mallet. No, right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Chris Carter thing. Unless there's anything else football-wise before we move on. No, I think we're good. Um, so Chris Carter... Uh, told at the, the NFL each year as a rookie symposium. There's two layers of this I want to talk about. Uh, there's a rookie symposium each year where the NFL brings the rookies in and they go through classes and seminars and they teach them about money or the media. Um, they have old players come in. Uh, in the the video, Chris Carter is actually wearing his Hall of Fame jacket. Okay. You know. He doesn't have a Super Bowl ring to wear, but he's got a Hall of Fame jacket, so he's wearing that. You know, and uh, he's him and Warren Sapp are up there, and they're talking to the kids, the rookies. Which, I mean, right off the bat, I know that those guys are employed by the NFL, and that's got to be where that decision started and ended. But could you think of two worse guys? Well, I think the idea is they made it. Here's two it. guys who screwed up, but were reformed. Yeah, but is Warren Sapp that reformed? Well, this is also before he was arrested at the Super Bowl. Oh, it was. This okay, so this video season. just came out. Okay, yeah. got it. Okay, so what happened is there's a story in ESPN about one of ESPN the magazine about one of the retired 49ers. Okay. And I guess he mentioned in the story that someone at the rookie imposium encouraged him and the other rookies to get a quote unquote fall guy. So I'm going to take the heat if they got in trouble with the law. Nobody's calling Borland a liar, but people thought it was odd. Yeah. Well, then video surfaced of Chris Carter telling them exactly that, like word for word that. Whose video? You said this video was on the NFL website. Yeah, here I can read. Uh, It was brobible.com did a good job to find the video from the symposium which was displayed on the NFL's website. The video is titled, Rookies Learn Life Lessons from Sapp and Carter. It got taken down Sunday afternoon, but there are versions on the internet, including some on YouTube. We just watched one. Right. Um, it's because y'all not going to decide to do the right thing. If y'all got a crew, you got to have a fall guy in that crew, Carter said. I let my homeboys know, y'all want to keep rolling like this. Then I need to know who's going to be the fall guy. Who's going to be driving? Y'all not going to do all the right stuff now. So I got to teach you how to get around all this stuff too. If you're going to have a crew, one of them fools got to know he going to jail. We'll get him out. We'll get him out. Sap repeated and chuckled. Now, Chris Carter has gotten blasted for this. I mean, right. Deservedly, deservedly so. so. Right. The angle I want to take on this is the NFL does next to nothing right PR-wise. For a league that Do you want to hear money, their, their uh, statement? I would love to hear. Because uh, this uh, is a – now there's a PR mess. Okay, because here's what, what do I – What do we do? Let's release a statement. Well, here's what I would think. Yeah. It's one of two things, neither of them good. One, they thought it was funny. Uh, not good. 
Especially considering... Or two, they just didn't watch it, or, really. Or Well, I guess if, if that's a thing, then that's an issue, too. You're one of the, Some intern posted it and right, didn't the, get it. Then that's nuts. And the other thing is, uh, they thought this was a good idea, and that shows horrible, horrible judgment. And I can't imagine it's that, as bad as their judgment is. Here's their statement. This was an unfortunate and inappropriate comment made by Chris Carter during the 2014 NFC Rookie Symposium. The comment was not representative of the message of the symposium or any other league program. The league's players, the league's player engagement staff immediately expressed concern about the comment to Chris. The comment was really not repeated in the AFC session of this year's symposium. So they want us to believe that they immediately told him not to do that, yet they put a video of him doing it and on NFL.com and left like it up until year? Sunday. Yeah. I'm going to call them liars again. Yeah. I, I don't believe them. It would be amazing if a video of the AFC symposium then came out with him saying the same comment. Do you want to hear Chris Carter's response? I know he had to publicly apologize. Which Chris is- Carter on Twitter said, seeing that video has made me realize how wrong I was. I was brought there to educate young people, and instead I gave them very bad advice. Every person should take responsibility for his own actions. I'm sorry, and I truly regret what I said that day. The NFL has a giant issue with being like a a good old boys club that gets away with whatever they want to, and they they this thing that they're supposed to be doing to teach these young kids coming out of school how to act, and you're going to have money now, and you're going to have this and that, and they treat it like a joke. they have a giant problem with... And Chris Borland, the player who retired, yeah, kind of bailed on the NFL and said, I don't need this. Okay. Said, I was just sitting there thinking, should I walk out? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? He told ESPN the magazine. Uh, yeah, good for him. Usi Uminora summed it up by saying, have a fall guy? That's your advice? Have a fall guy? Um, also, another layer of this. Apparently, Robert Klemko, who's been a fan, uh, friend of us, yeah. this podcast, very kind to us, had this story and decided not to run it. Why? Well, I mean, we, I don't sure know. We'll have I guess we because him, but... he didn't want to throw Carter under the bus, I guess. Peter King tweeted that he 100% supports the decision. And I, th- I, I seen someone kind of tweeting about how. They lost a connection with Adrian Peterson uh, because of running with something about him. It wasn't last year's thing. Okay. It was something else that they ran with. I think there's some element to this that's supposedly off the record, maybe. Now, when the NFL puts the video on NFL.com, it's not off the record anymore. Right. I'm not exactly sure completely of the Klemko issue. I just know he made the decision to not run with this story. And Peter King has 100% publicly said, I support that. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to find more out about yeah, why. Yeah. I mean, the NFL is going to make this into a Chris Carter thing, I imagine, not an NFL thing. Like, look at the NFL. It's got, okay, I got a room full of NFC rookies. Let's teach them how to be good pros by bringing Chris Carter and Warren Sapp in. Unbelievable. I mean, 
you don't want some you want this, you want someone that can relate to the players, I suppose. And too. they're trying super hard to do that. The way oh, the they're talking right, and the way yeah. they're acting, they're trying to just be. They're trying to act like they're just but these, best I mean, buddies with these kids. Even if you believe that Chris Carter and Sap were reformed from their days playing. You right, gotta, did I you say gotta, on or off the air? Uh, that, that was off the air before. Yeah, that the reason that they would put these two guys up there is because they're guys who have made mistakes right. in their career. Oh, no, okay, that you did say. Okay, yeah. all right. Um, that's fine if you believe that. you got to coach them up a little bit. I mean, did they never say, hey, guys, give me a give me a... <laughs> Five minute or give me a couple minute synopsis of what you're gonna. According to them, they coach them up in between the AFC and NFC once. Just right. good timing. Either that or Chris Carter just didn't mention it that time around, which is my guess. Right. Yeah. They watch that video real quick, find out he because I'm guessing this is pretty off the cuff kind of a thing. Sure. You walk in there and you just rap I mean, with the guys. It almost sounds like he was joking, like, but they're not there to do a. He's comedy not joking. Not there to do a comedy He's routine. Dead they're- serious. Yeah. He even says, I don't think I read this. Uh, I know none of y'all going to never drink latte. I know right. none of y'all going to never use drugs or anything. All y'all going to go to Bible study, he said in a sarcastic tone. I realize that, but still, get you a fall guy. Right. So, I mean, the message that he sent the he kids said it over is, and over. is not to behave and hold yourself to a certain standard. But when you screw up, you make sure there's a buddy there right. to take the fall. It's unbelievable. The, the NFL, I mean, goddamn. I, I, this one pisses me off for some reason. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what they would have to do. Bill Burr was on Conan O'Brien, and this is probably from a year ago or so. But he's like, the commissioner remember, could yeah. come out and punt a baby across the room. I'm still going to watch football. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I think the problem is I have to somehow associate what is happening on the field with what's associate or what's happening off the field, and I just don't like I separate that. And fantasy football is about me getting together with my friends. It's not about Adrian Peterson hitting his kid or whatever. Like, I love my team more than anything, and I'm still going to watch them every year. But I don't know where Chris Carter works right now. I, th- I think it's ESPN. I'm not sure. But I have no use for anything he has to say ever again. No, and, and like part I'm of tuning me, him out. As much as I love the NFL and fantasy football and the Bills and just the ritual that is Sunday, like there's a big part of me that just wants to see that league fall on its face somehow. I just, I'll just start with just get rid of Goodell. Yeah, yeah. I'll just start with that. I would take that. Yep. All right. I mean, I, I mean, I took the anti Brady stance a few weeks ago, but that doesn't make me pro Goodell by any means. So I. It's unbelievable the stuff that has come out during his tenure there. Let's move on to Kurt Schilling. Uh, he's a twenty-year-old, twenty-year major league veteran. Um, he's a current analyst for ESPN Sunday Night Baseball. Video game designer of some. Yeah, sort. that didn't work out. <laughs> he's also a right-wing conservative. Okay, which we know doesn't go over well on the internet. No, right, right. Not that I'm defending him necessarily just yet. We'll see. Let's talk about this a little bit. Okay, I haven't heard about this. So he tweeted a picture, mm-hmm. which I guess you'd call this a meme. Okay. Picture with words on it. Yep. yep. It's got a picture of Hitler. Okay. Um, and That's he's a good start. got his arm out. Right. And he's got his swastika on it. It's a picture of Hitler. Yep. And it looks like you would think Hitler looks. Okay. It's got a red sort of gaze over the picture. Okay. And it says it's only five to ten percent of Muslims. It said only five to ten percent of Muslims are extremists. 
1940, only 7% of Germans were Nazis. Okay. How'd that go? Okay. Okay. He said above that in the tweet, the math is staggering when you get to the true numbers. Okay. All right. Well, ESPN, he deleted it. Yeah. He said that uh, he needed to actually think a bit before acting on that one or not acting. It's on me, though. Of course. Um, He's been pulled from the Little League World Series where he was covering that. And it does actually say here, this is just a couple days for ESPN after dealing with Chris Carter's comments from the symposium. A busy week for ESPN PR. Uh, They released a statement. Saying uh, Kurt's tweet was completely unacceptable and in no way represents our company's perspective. Clearly. We made that point very strongly to Kurt and have removed him from his current Little League assignment pending further consideration. That's almost hilarious that that's what he's covering when he decides that this would be a good idea to tweet out. It's clearly poor judgment. Yeah, that, it's that's clearly very kind of tasteless it's, that, it's just it's off-putting it's very fuzzy logic too <laughs> it's, I mean, it's sort of siding one fact into another to make a yeah, point that right who, it's very convoluted is there, yeah. It's, yeah convoluted good word um is it a fireable thing i think suspendable feels better here yeah I, I, I don't you smack him down i don't think he should get fired for it no we we've kind of defended people as far as the i hate firing yeah, people yeah. to that extent that's that like why? Why are you doing uh, that? Yeah, how do you not know better? How, how do you have a job like that? Know better. In a, we we we. I mean, we scrutinize ourselves so heavily. I mean, when we get when we know we're going to talk about something controversial, we sort of talk it out ahead of time and sort of feel each other out to see if there's something like, "Hey, don't say that." Right. That's almost like we feel. Like that's the one thing. It's our biggest fear. We are fear, not for sure. huge yeah. by any means, and we feel like that's the one thing that can make us huge and destroy us in the same. <laughs> right in the same breath. Right. Um, and we worry about that, and we we try really hard. Why doesn't Kurt Schilling take the same consideration? All he has to do is n- nothing in that right. situation. It's not like he it's was that important of a tweet. Right. He wasn't cornered in an interview and said, "What do you think about Muslims?" and someone caught him off guard or a couple drinks in or something. Just, "What are you doing?" I don't know. Kurt Schilling, you're a dummy. Yeah, not good. All right, last thing. Uh we talked in my one last thing about SummerSlam, and we're not going to go too far into this cuz I don't know for sure if we're going to do 20 minutes with the masked man on it anyway. Okay. But we did say we'd talk a little bit about how some of the better matches turned out uh, last week and I talked a bit how it was a two match show we also talked about how it went to four hours that was a failed experiment okay two hours was or four hours was too long you knew it would be you you said you called that before every single person in the room was fighting at that last hour okay the main event was Brock Lesnar versus Undertaker and they went with a very convoluted finish so it's about 15, 16 minutes into the match, and Brock has got Undertaker in a submission hold. Okay. And the ref is standing behind Brock, whose back is against the mat. And he, the ref is doing the whole gimmick where he's checking to see if Brock is pitting himself. Okay, if his shoulders, yeah. Checking his shoulders. 
Undertaker on the other side of that starts tapping out on his leg. Okay, I and, can see where this is going. And the bell rings. But who won? Okay, well there was no no. So the ref starts yell. Lesnar stands up. His guy Heyman gets in the ring and yep. is bowing to him. You made him tap. First time the Undertaker's ever tapped. And the ref, in the meantime, is screaming at the timekeeper about how it's my job. You don't do that. I didn't call for the bell. Okay. Because the ref is saying, I didn't see a tap. What What was the bell for? So in that, just that's just long enough for the Undertaker to give Lesnar a low blow. Okay. He puts Lesnar in a submission. Lesnar gives him the finger, passes out. And the ref calls for the bell and gives Undertaker the win. Now, the problem with the finish was that the initial view of TV, you could not tell that the Undertaker tapped. So when the bell rang, nobody knew why. Oh, okay. Was that by design, you think? or I don't know. If it was, it was stupid. Yeah. So, at best, convoluted. At worst, stupid, as far as that finish goes. If, they're gonna give, if they want to do this a third time which I'm pretty sure they do. They had to find a way to get out of it with Undertaker winning, but not taking away the steam that Brock has built up, basically crushing everyone since the day he beat Undertaker. So they had to find a way to under, for Undertaker to beat him without actually beating him. Right. A way for Brock to come back the next day on Monday and say, not only did you not win, I just tapped you for the first time in your entire career. Right. Even though they're sort of ignoring the fact that he t- tapped to... Uh, Kurt Angle as well in another convoluted finish. <laughs> okay. Now, you're a large wrestling fan. Yeah, I'm a You've got a buddy that yeah. is a huge Even bigger mark. Yeah. yeah. How do people like – how do you like to see the matches finish? Do you like a straightforward – I think it depends what the event is. Yeah. And certainly at an event like SummerSlam, you want a decisive finish. Because I remember I've talked – when we were talking about wrestling last week, that my, my favorite thing was always Royal Rumble. I like the gimmick of it. My least favorite Royal Rumble was the one where I think it was when Vince Austin and, and McMahon Austin did the thing, went yeah. out under the ropes and decided that that made it okay for them to just fight all around the arena, and then one of them won. Vince, maybe. Yeah, I think Vince won. All right. Uh, I hated that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, events like the Royal Rumble, you want a decisive winner. Okay. You can deal with this, like the pay-per-view before SummerSlam. And then say, okay, now we're going to blow the feud off the next month or something like that. That's always going to be a part of wrestling. Yeah. Uh, the other thing with Cena and Rollins for both of their belts. Did John Stewart come into the John ring? John Stewart actually interfered, okay. hit Cena with a chair, uh, which is supposed to be a big swerve because John had been feuding kind of jokingly with, the other with guy. Rollins. Right, yeah. Well, he came out on Raw yesterday and said he couldn't, with good conscience, let Cena get the 16th championship victory under his watch because he's such a big, big Flair, Flair fan. fan. Okay. So then Flair came out, thanked him, but gave Cena an endorsement. Um, and then Cena came out and said, I understand what you did and why you thought you had to do it. I hope you understand why I had to do this. And Jon Stewart took Cena's finish. Yeah. <laughs> That's a tough bump. I, don't, John, I, don't I give I John Stewart a lot of credit for taking this bump. I'll have to watch a video after. I wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> I give him a lot of credit. So that's the SummerSlam update. Maybe we'll talk more uh, with the masked man. We'll definitely talk wrestling with the masked man as soon as we can. 
All right, we're going to take a break and come back with uh, Aaron Schatz. All right, our next guest lives in Framingham, Massachusetts, and is a graduate of Brown University. He is the creator of Football Outsiders and is the lead writer, editor, and statistician of the Football Outsiders Almanac. He's making his fifth appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Aaron Schatz. What's going on, Aaron? Hey, a little bit of alma mater there. Not bad. The Brown Bears. Yes, not... No longer featured, well, I was going to say no longer featured in NCAA football by EA Sports, but then again, nobody is featured in NCAA football by EA Sports because the game doesn't exist anymore. That's right. They had their legal uh, battle that was started by Ed O'Bannon, I believe, was the name on the uh, the lawsuit, I believe. But they, uh, for a couple of years there, the last couple of years, they eliminated the 1AA teams. They used to have the 1AA teams in there, um, and then they got rid of those, and then they got rid of the whole thing, so... Did you ever get on the game and jack up your your one double A team super sick and win the one uh, A national championship with them, or was that not- no no because you couldn't do, you <laughs> couldn't play the one double A teams and like you had to like br- you had to bring them into one A and then suck with them for a few years if you wanted to play them. So I did. I will admit a few times to playing the Rhode Island Derby of Brown versus URI, but since I didn't know who any of the players were, it really wasn't that exciting. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds about right. I was uh, I always loved in the NHL game. I didn't really it got to a point where I didn't like playing with the NHL guys as much as I liked making myself. So they have a really great on the NHL game, a really great feature where you can um, kind of build yourself up because the game. I think hockey lends itself to that pretty well. Being able, you know, since there's only five guys out there on each side at a time, and it's a good feature. But I haven't, right. played, I haven't played in a while. I don't play as much as much video games uh, as I used to since the cell phones and iPads. I play a lot more yeah, the, on there. The problem with football is unless you make yourself the quarterback, there's going to be a lot of plays where you're really not involved. Right. Yep. I tried to do it as a wide receiver once, and I was like, I'm never around. So, I don't know. And then you start forcing the ball to yourself, especially if you're a wide receiver. Like, I can yeah. catch that in triple coverage. I'll just go over top of the guy. But, I don't know. I digress. Uh, how are you doing, Aaron? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm ready for the season. Of course, we have two more weeks of preseason games to live through before then but i'm ready i want to get this off the top and i want to we'll talk about it on the bottom too the football outsiders almanac 2015 is available three ways this year you can get it in a pdf version you can get it in print version obviously the way it originated and you can also get it specifically in the kindle version which is available on amazon.com well, all three ways are available on or two ways i believe are available on amazon kindle and print and um it looks amazing on the iPad. I got the Kindle version, and it just looks great on there. I know there was some uh, graphics maybe in mobile uh, that you had mentioned. There was an issue with kind of formatting, and I know you've been researching they that. They get but very small. <laughs> I, I was going to say I didn't notice it at all. I, I thought the thing looked amazing on there. So whatever it was, I it didn't affect my Kindle copy. I thought the whole thing looks amazing that way. It's uh, about $2 less and a great way to uh, get the uh, – almanac and to get it right away if you're if you're itching 
Uh, you don't have to wait for the mail or anything like that. So I want to mention that at the top, and we'll run it down at the end too as well. Uh, but three ways this year, PDF, print, and Kindle, and Amazon.com, and also on the website, probably the best two ways to get it. So with that said, uh, tell me what makes this Obviously, every year is unique uh, because it's a new year, new teams, new players, and all that. But what was it about maybe the process this year? Because we're always interested in process here, uh, maybe a little bit more than some of the other interviews. Kind of putting together this book and the process of the 2015 Almanac, what stood out, what was different, what was the challenge, what was easier? I'm curious about that. Well, um, I mean, I, I, I don't have happy words to say about the process, the, there's no question our books come out really late the last two years. It was late last year and then even later this year because of, you know, personal issues. Uh, I wrote about this very briefly at the site that is sort of attempts to explain, but I had to take custody of my daughter for two months this summer, which put the book behind, as you might imagine. I understand. Um, so uh, we're certainly hoping that in future years we'll have a little bit better handle on making sure that it's out in early July, because we know people are hungry for football information then, especially because July is often the sort of the dead period, you know, that late June, early July is the one period on the schedule where there's not a lot going on, provided that the NFL is not, say, fighting one of its best players in federal court. <laughs> so, you know, we shoot to get out of there at that, that, that point. I will say that as far as the content of the book, uh, three big things this year. Okay, so the first is well, some really good new writers. Andrew Healy and Sterling Z have been uh, new writers who started writing for us over the last few months, and Andrew is an economics professor, so he brings some really good knowledge of statistical theory, you know, to make sure that the, the work behind the stats that we do is a little bit more, um, is a little bit more solid, perhaps, than it was before. Uh, Sterling is a really talented young writer who's actually still in college himself, but really knows football, really knows how to work our stats in with what he sees on the field, and I think he's going to really go places in his writing career. Uh, we also have a new uh, format for college football this year, where rather than doing uh, entries on every team from the Power Five conferences, we concentrated on the teams that are in our top 50 projections so that we could write a little bit more about each team but a little less about, you know, Indiana and Kentucky and other teams that really nobody, unless you're a really hardcore fan of those schools, is paying much attention to those football teams. And then the other big change this year is a real overhaul to our NFL win projection system. With the help of Andrew, uh, you know, we overhauled that to be more accurate and I think do a much better job this year of considering personnel changes rather than just looking at kind of general statistical trends from year to year. So, you know, we know that teams will generally regress towards the mean. That's kind of how life works. But there are certain teams that will make, you know, where personnel changes and make it much more likely that they'll be better or worse. And I think we do a much better job of incorporating that into our projections. That's really interesting to me. And I asked you sort of about this last year. We talked about it for quite a bit, and I don't want to, I want to sort of ask it a different way this year, but when the season ends and you get a chance to look at your projections and your predictions and how they match up with what happened on the field, do you also look at some of the other uh, some of the other uh, statistical driven websites that also try to do what you do uh, similarly 
and see if they were maybe more accurate or less accurate and then sort of maybe tweak uh, with that in mind? Or do you simply focus on, hey, these are the stats we use and are most comfortable with and believe in the most. Let's just tweak them if necessary. Uh, the latter. Yeah, I don't look at how other sites did in their predictions. Our goal is to make our predictions as accurate as possible. You know, we build a system looking at the last dozen years or so. And so that's all I look at, I really, is, is just what can we do better with the numbers we have. I don't really look at what any other site has. Um, one thing I did look at was 538 wrote an article last year about why, you know, Monte Carlo simulations for the NFL tend to be so heavily grouped around 8 and 8. And uh, I looked at that and we used that as sort of a guideline for when we simulated the season this year, we did what we call a dynamic simulation, where uh, when we simulate the season, we, we assumed that if a team won a game, it meant they were better than we thought they were, and if they lost a game, it meant they were worse than we thought they were. And that made it so that the spread of wins was a little bit more natural. It produced more teams that were projected to go 2-14 and more teams projected to go 14-2 and two, and not as many projected to go 8-8 eight eight because, you know, the, the highest team in DVOA is our main statistic, right? So right. Um, the best projected team in the preseason is going to be around 20%. But the best team by the end of the season is usually going to be around 40%. So we don't want to play the whole season as if by the time you get to week 17, the best team in the league is still 20%. Now, the way it works with this dynamic simulation is that if you have a team, say, like Seattle, which starts at 20%, and they go 14-2 and two or whatever, by the end of the season, they're going to go into the playoffs where we're assuming they're more like a 40% team, which is probably what reality would look like if a team that was as well-projected as Seattle actually went 14-2. and two. That's how good a team they would be. And so that gives us more realistic, uh, you know, a more realistic uh, spread of wins and losses and a little bit more realistic look at who's going to win the Super Bowl. And we need to test that a little bit, I think, between this year and next year to see just how dynamic we need to make the simulation. But for now, it's definitely an improvement over what we did in the past. And I will say that that is an idea that we got from an article on 538. That's really interesting. And uh, already you've mentioned the word regression. And... When we talked last year, uh, we tried to predict regression a little bit. And one team that we focused on, if I recall, was Carolina, who absolutely regressed despite, you know, maybe now when you look back at it, it was like, well, they're a playoff team. But, I mean, in reality, they needed some really special circumstances to be uh, a playoff team and and a decent second half run as well. But uh, who are a team or teams that you have really focused on in terms of uh, regression this year? Uh, you mean teams that are going to uh, regress compared to where they were last year? Right. Well, uh, I mean, as far as, see, there's two, I guess there's two sort of categories of that. There's teams that are going to regress from how well they played according to DVOA, and there's teams that their actual wins and losses didn't match their DVOA, so that absolutely says they're going to regress. Um, when it comes to the latter, teams that were not as good as their ratings last year, the obvious choice is Arizona. Mm-hmm. So um, Arizona last year was 
I'm looking up the exact number right now, they were 20 seconds in our rating, despite being 11 and 5. They simply were not as good as their record. And the funny thing about that is, it's not because they played an easy schedule, because they actually had a hard schedule. But they won a lot of close games, and just, you know, they had a lot of sort of cluster luck, you know, where all their best plays came in a cluster. Uh, now, there's no doubt that Bruce Arians in his career as a head coach has tended to weigh out play what stats would otherwise predict from his teams. And there is a little bit of a certain curiosity on our part as to whether Bruce Arians is one of the reasons why Arizona does that and thus they're not going to collapse this year. But everything we know about a team that plays on a play-by-play basis the way Arizona did last year, you know, even if you don't look at the last few weeks when they had Ryan Lindley at quarterback right. uh, and were really, really, really bad, uh, but that team is going to go like, you know, 8-8 eight and eight the next year. And then when you add in that they have the hardest projected schedule in the league and that they lost some talent on defense, we have them projected. Uh, their average win total in our, in our simulations is only 6.5. So obviously that's a huge amount of regression. Uh, when you look at a team that really did play well last year, but that you see a lot of regression towards the mean in part because they weren't as good the year before, you know, and so you see them kind of coming back to the pack. I think we see that a bit with Pittsburgh and how much their offense improved last year, although the flip of that is that their defense will get better for the exact same reason. Right? Pittsburgh was number two on offense and 30 on defense last year, which not only are those extremes in general, but they're serious extremes compared to the history of the Pittsburgh franchise. That's the best offense right. they've ever had and the worst <laughs> defense they've ever had in the history of our numbers going back 25 years. So we would expect to see some regression towards the mean from both of those te- uh, both the offense and the defense. Uh, another huge team as far as regression is the New York Jets. The New York Jets were only 21st in defense last year. Obviously, that's a huge difference from what they've been the few years previous. And they only had a takeaway on 5.8% of drives. That is the lowest of any defense since 1997. And when you look at the lowest defenses in turnovers per drive over the last 20 years, the next year they average being average in turnovers per drive. And all it takes is being average in turnovers per drive to make the Jets a top 10 defense before you even consider all the talent they added in the secondary. Wow. Now, and and this is maybe a good time to bring this up because you did mention Bruce Arians and coaches. Um, Well, not coaches, but coach. You mentioned Bruce Arians and how you're interested to see, uh, maybe look at him a little bit more. Where does coaching changes kind of fit in overall? Do you look at a team like the Bills bringing in uh, Rex Ryan? Uh, does that affect it at all? Or the Jets losing Rex Ryan? Um, does that matter to you? Or is that more of a, um, a non-measurable yeah, the honest truth is that it's a non-measurable. We don't know how good a head coach uh, Todd Bowles is going to be for the Jets. We don't know how good Rex Ryan will be at his second stop. Some coaches are much better at their second stop, like Bill Belichick. Some coaches are most much worse at their second or third stop, like Mike Shanahan was in Washington. Um, it is really hard to judge a team objectively based on adding a head coach and that head coach generally has either no experience or the only experience he had is with one team, how do you know how much of that team's you know, quality was because of that coach? 
What we do know is that in general, teams with new systems and new coordinators tend to take a step back from what you would expect from them otherwise, and so that is incorporated into our projection system. Gotcha. Now, you guys, one thing that's always, I don't want to say a guarantee in the NFL, but a trend that we consistently see is teams that weren't in the playoffs. There's usually like five teams or so, a turnover from year to year in the playoffs. Right. Some new teams. And like there's the wonky thing in the NFC South where maybe Carolina last year was the first team to win it back-to-back years since it's existed. Um, but when you look at your ratings and your projections, who are some non-playoff teams last year that you think could be one of those four or five that we usually see, but we can never kind of figure out who they might be. You guys probably have a better handle on that from year to year. Who are some teams you're pretty By the way, there's actually been less of that in the last few years than there have been in the first few years of the eighth division format. I don't have a number to give you on that. It's probably something I should look at. So I have a specific number to quote to people, but there's been less of that playoff turnover, and there's been more consistency at the top of the league. Huh. Um, with the top team. I mean, New England has won double-digit games every year since 2003. Uh, you know, Green Bay has won uh, at least, you know, they've been in the playoffs or had at least 10 wins almost every year for like a decade. Indianapolis was like that except for one season. Denver has generally been very high. Pittsburgh has had a couple of off years, but, you know, there's been a lot more consistency from New year. Do you have a theory uh, as to why? I think um, some of it may just be more power to the top quarterbacks. Yep. But uh, I also think teams may be learning how to deal with the current free agency rules more than they knew a dozen years ago. Uh, But when we look at uh, teams that make the playoffs that didn't last year, uh, the first obvious choice would be in the NFC South, where we have... Uh, New Orleans and Atlanta with the two easiest schedules in the league. And I also think that those teams are likely to be a little bit better than Carolina. Uh, you know, and Carolina took a little bit even more of a step back once the, the injury to uh, Calvin Benjamin. But mm-hmm. Carolina is in general kind of a team that's slightly below average in every way, uh, maybe slightly above average on defense. Whereas New Orleans and Atlanta are teams with really good offenses and poor defenses, but offense tends to be more powerful than defense. So overall, we have Atlanta and New Orleans as major playoff contenders because the schedule being so easy. Philadelphia is another one. Uh, you know, obviously they were ten and six last year, but they missed the playoffs. They, you know, should be neck and neck with Dallas this year, and they do have a slightly easier schedule than Dallas. Um, St. Louis is a team I was really surprised that our numbers liked because theoretically we were really not that excited about their uh, let's go back to 1977 philosophy of building around front seven and running game. But our numbers just liked, liked them. And they ended up projected as uh, a serious contender for wild card. And they'd be a serious division contender if they weren't in the same division with Seattle. They were the six uh, most likely. primarily based on defense. Six highest odds to win the Super Bowl in the Almanac as well, I believe. Yes, yeah, because yeah. their offense is projected to be just slightly below average. Because, you know, while Foles is no, not, doesn't seem like a great quarterback, we know he had a great year two years ago, and we know that they had backups last year. 
So anybody who's a starting quality quarterback is an upgrade on what they had last year. Right. And if the defense can really come into its own with all that talent they have on the front seven, that could definitely be a really good team. Um, the, the other couple that I think are going to be in wild card contention are Minnesota, although they do have a tough schedule, and the Jets. I think the Jets are going to be a serious wild card contender, especially because with Ryan Fitzpatrick as uh, with Ryan Fitzpatrick as, as a quarterback now, there's sort of more even keelness about a Jets projection. You know, I don't. You know, there, there was always the teeny tiny possibility that Geno Smith could suddenly put it together, and I don't think that you have that with Ryan Fitzpatrick, but. The floor of how bad Ryan Fitzpatrick will be is a lot higher than the floor of how bad Geno Smith might be. And this is going to be one of the top three defenses in the league. The sportscasters are here with Adam Schatz from Pro Football Outsiders. It's footballoutsiders.com on Twitter. You can find, or excuse me, on the web. Uh, you can find uh, Aaron on Twitter, FO underscore A S C H A T Z uh, on Twitter there. Uh, yeah, and I will point out. Football yeah. outsiders, not pro football outsiders. Although I do own both URLs, because I wouldn't want to give short shrift to the work that Bill Connolly, Brian Primo, and Chad Peltier do on college football and the big expanded college football section in this year's Football Outsiders Almanac 2015. Uh, not to be read by anybody who is a fan of TCU and gets angry. Using- <laughs> okay, then that the college football fans can tend to get mad very easily as well. Yes, they do. They're very touchy. Although Uh, not about anything like, say, PSI football. So score one for college football on the sanity radar. Okay, we'll give them that. How much uh, has fantasy football and even uh, daily uh, fantasy football um, increased your business or your traction? Do you think people are looking at your numbers? I was thinking that, especially with the daily and how popular that's getting, that Football Outsiders could be a tremendous resource for that. Has that... Um, have you noticed that in terms of uh, dollars and cents, or is that still just something that uh, should be, but people haven't clicked with yet? So far, it hasn't increased our business, but it's changed it. There's no doubt we're doing more with Daily Fantasy this year. I think some sort of Football Outsiders weekly fantasy projections is going to be a reality by 2016. We are going to be writing more Daily Fantasy-oriented articles for ESPN this year. Um there probably is going to be an announcement soon about other daily fantasy-oriented situations involving football outsiders that I can't talk about right now, but stay tuned. Okay. Uh, so there's no doubt that there has been a big impact on our business from the popularity of daily fantasy and that a larger percentage of what we're doing is daily fantasy-oriented. It's a huge business. Now, I think fantasy... When I was going through uh, the book this year, I took several notes... Uh, down that I specifically took down uh, to use during my fantasy drafts. And we're pretty much entering the epicenter of fantasy draft season. Um, what are some things from the Almanac? You don't have to give it all away, obviously, but what are some things or some players or some information uh, that you'd like to share as sort of a teaser to help the fantasy player getting ready to draft uh, this weekend or next or sometime before the season starts? Sorry, can you say that again? Um, yeah, I was just wondering if you wanted to give some information uh, from the Almanac, because myself, I took some notes uh, that I'm going to use specifically for my drafts, uh, maybe as a way to show uh, how useful your information can be for fantasy 
did you want to give out a few uh, fantasy-related, uh, maybe a couple sleepers or some interesting stats that you think uh, fantasy players could use during their drafts? Yeah, well, da- daily fantasy can be tougher for that because, I will say, because before the season starts, we don't, you know, we have our guess about how good certain defenses will be and what the strengths and weaknesses of those defenses will be, but that's not necessarily what they actually will be once we head into midseason and have more data. Um, you know, so the kind of preseason projections that we do are certainly going to be more important for season-long fantasy, I think, than they are going to be for, for daily fantasy. Right, so let's hit I some of those. The, 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 the biggest note I can give this year is that the running backs all seem very packed together in our projection. And in many ways, sort of the top seven or eight running backs, who you want depends on how you feel personally. You know, I mean, it's not, there's not, they're not necessarily clearly protected one over the other. A lot of it sort of depends on how you see things. Um, I think also that uh, because of that, there are a lot of leagues in which it's going to make sense to take wide receivers earlier, especially PPR tech leagues, because the top wide receivers stand out more than the top running backs do right now. I mean, I think you know what you're going to get pretty much out of Des Bryant, out of Antonio Brown, out of Demarius Thomas. Julio Jones. Uh, Julio Jones, right. I mean, as long as those guys stay healthy, you know what you're going to get out of them. Uh, I do think that we are probably higher than a lot of people are on uh, Matt Ryan, in part because of the easy schedule that we have projected for Atlanta for um, Drew Brees, there may be a little bit of that as well. And also, uh, I think we're probably a little higher on Tony Romo because of sort of a knowledge of how regression works. Um, they may say that they want to run the very run-heavy offense that they ran last year in Dallas. But the fact is that there, does, you know, there is usually regression towards the mean when, on a team's you know, run-pass ratio from year to year, especially if that team was passing a lot more in the past, and also if that team doesn't win as many games, they're going to pass more because they're not going to be icing clock uh, late in games. And Dallas is probably not going 12-4 and four again, and so all those things lead to the idea that Tony Romo and probably Jason Witten and maybe Terrence Williams uh, may be a little underrated in draft this year. You know, Des Bryant is prob- prob- probably properly rated because everyone knows how good he is, but uh, those other guys may be a little underrated because people think that Dallas is going to run the same offense they ran last year, and it, it's probably, you know, it's not going to be passing as much as they did two years ago, but it'll probably be somewhere between what it was two years ago and what it was last year. Right, well, last year they was, I mean, more, I, I can't remember a season, I'm sure there is one, but man, did they use uh, DeMarco Murray quite a bit. Um, yeah, he was over 390 carries, and that yeah. was the first running back to go over 370 carries for... In almost a decade, I think. Uh, let's get a few quick ones in, and I'll let you go. Uh, based on projections or any way you want to take it, uh, do you think that the Bills could end their playoff drought this year? Yeah, I think the Bills could. I think they're basically the same type of team as the Jets. But we don't have them projected to be quite as good as the Jets because of the amount of defensive talent that the Jets added, but the Bills, we know the Bills are going to have a very good defense. Um, the, the problem is I think people are expecting that Rex Ryan's going to come in and take that defense to the next level. There really isn't much of a next level. That was already right. one of the top defenses in the league last year. 
there's not a lot of next level Rex Ryan can take them to. So if that team's going to improve, the improvement has to come on offense. And good luck with that because, you know, they have a lot of fun skill players, but they still don't have a real quarterback. And Percy Harvin has just not been the efficient weapon that people think he is the last couple of years. And LaShawn McCoy, if he doesn't get good blocking, may not be the efficient weapon people think he is. And there's only so much Sammy Watkins can do if nobody can get him the ball. So, and Charles Clay, making Charles Clay like the highest paid tight end in the game was ludicrous. So, you know, is there a chance for the Bills? Oh, yeah. But it's, you know, it's not super strong. There's been almost no buzz on Harvin here at all, either. Like, I've barely heard his name, which is so strange, uh, considering... Usually, when a name, just like a, a generic, like a name like that in the league, comes here, there's so much buzz and excitement. And I just haven't felt it here with Harvin at all. Yeah, because you know, part of it is when are we going to use him just as a normal wide receiver? You know, you like guys that can do gimmicks, but you want them to be able to be a, a normal wide receiver too. Randall Cobb can also be a normal wide receiver. Brandon Cooks can also be a normal wide receiver. It's a couple of years since we've seen Percy Harvin also actually just kind of be a wide receiver as well as the gimmicks. Let me it's ask. Like Tavon Austin, Tavon, Tavon Austin is like that for St. Louis. He can't. He hasn't been able to just play wide receivers. So all you are left with is gimmicks. Right, that's a great point. Uh, let me ask you this one last thing, and then we'll start uh, laying everything out for everyone. Um, how different are your projections with Tom Brady out for the four games and in for the four games? Not that different, because I mean the Patriots project to be a different team. But because they're, you're only, it's only four games, it's not a colossal difference. You also, the fact is, you know, we have them projected with the best special teams in the league because they've been the best, consistently best team on special teams over the last few years. They may not end up with the number one team, but, you know, they're always in the top five. They're likely to be in the top five. And we have the defenses average. Despite the problems in the secondary, there's a lot of strength on that. Not set. And even in years, in, in recent years, when the Patriots defense looked like it was really bad, it often was giving up points because it was on the field, you know, the offense would score and then the defense would have to come on the field and they could give up points because they were up by, you know, 21 points. So, um, you know, with Garoppolo as the quarterback, we go from projecting the Patriots as the second best team in the league uh, to projecting the Patriots as like the 13th or so best team in the league, which means that overall we would expect them to win like, you know, six-tenths of a game less in those first four games with Garoppolo, the quarterback. You know, so even if, you you know, you think that that's making it sound a little better than it really is, the difference between the expectations with and without Garoppolo, uh, with and without Brady as the starter in those first four games is probably one with. <laughs> and the Patriots in Seattle, those two teams, start the year so far ahead of the rest of the league in our projections that it doesn't bring the Patriots back to the rest of the pack in the AFC East to win one fewer game. All right, so you're very much projecting at this point, based on preseason numbers, Seattle versus New England again in the Super Bowl. Right, and then, of course, that the odds of that are actually not very large. Right. You know, we're mm-hmm. projecting, you know, that's still, we still only project that to be whatever, like 15% of all Super Bowls or whatever. But, I mean, there's no question, we have... We have Five teams well ahead of the rest of the league. In fact, four teams well ahead of the rest of the league. Green Bay and Seattle, Denver. New England, Denver, and Green Bay. Although Green, Green Bay will go down when I redo this because it's Jordy Nelson. 
And then Indianapolis, because their schedule is so easy, even though we don't have them actually projected as one of the top ten teams in quality. And then after that, it's like, you know, a big pack of teams that could kind of get it together, like St. Louis and Minnesota, with teams that we know are good but not necessarily great, like Cincinnati and Philadelphia and Baltimore and Dallas. And, you know, that's assuming Dallas takes a step back. Obviously, they're not necessarily going to, but... You know, their defense last year, remember what I said, the Jets, about how many turnovers, uh, the Jets had so few turnovers. Right. Uh, the Cowboys defense had the most turnovers per drive in the league. So that defense is not likely to get as many takeaways this year, meaning the defense will not get off the field as often as they did last year. And just to illustrate that as more, too, uh, in the uh, Almanac and the odds to win the Super Bowl, the difference between six at 3.7 St. Louis and New Orleans, uh, 15 they're at 2.9, so a really small uh, gap between 6 and 15. Right. The uh, gap between Indianapolis and St. Louis in our odds to win the Super Bowl is roughly the same as the gap between St. Louis and the average team in the league. Right. So things are pretty concentrated, and the projections are pretty concentrated in those top five teams, especially the top four teams, Seattle, New England, Denver, and Green Bay, although Green Bay would be, would be lower. The football's... Outsiders Almanac 2015 is one of the best preseason resources for uh, reading about your team, reading about the league, preparing for fantasy football drafts. It's a very versatile book, and it's available three ways this year. There's a PDF version, uh, there's a print version, and there's a Kindle-specific version. Footballoutsiders.com is the website. Um, You can go there for the easiest uh, ways to purchase. Also, Amazon is a great way. Uh, you can find Aaron at F-O underscore A-S-C-H-A-T-Z on Twitter. It's at F-B Outsiders on Twitter, but don't bother that account for fantasy questions. They don't answer them there. Uh, also, there's a ton of... I should point out, by the way, why that is. Sure. It's because we have a 24-hour fantasy question answering line as part of our premium subscription. So we do not respond to fantasy questions on Twitter in part because... That's all we would get. And in part because, you know, the people who have the premium answering service should get our attention first. Absolutely. And you can subscribe to the premium service on the website. Also, there's articles on ESPN Insider uh, available. And um, if you go to Football Outsiders' website, um, basically uh, in the headlines part right at the top, uh, you can click on the FO on ESPN tab uh, to find those articles. For example, um, the most recent is overrated and underrated wide receivers by plus minus and yards per catch. Um, and if you're an ESPN the magazine subscriber, that means that you're an ESPN insider. Um, that's a great reason uh, maybe to renew that uh, subscription to the magazine if you're considering it. Um, let's see what. Yeah, else. And I'll point out by the way, we we get a lot of people complaining that we work with ESPN Insider, and I got to tell you, it's really a great deal. We, oh, totally. Uh, we, 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 if we had to put on our own site as a premium the content we put on ESPN Insider, it would cost you more money, and you wouldn't get access to all the other stuff on ESPN Insider that you get access to, like, you know, Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay and some Casey Joyner stuff and some Pro Football Focus stuff and Kevin Pelton and Tom Haberstroh and Dan Zaborski and all the people from other sports. And the magazine. And, so, and the magazine. Yeah, which the fact you- is... That it would it would be a it's a better deal for you for us to work with the world. I realize there's a board and some people don't like them for that, 
but it is honestly a better deal for our readers to get ESPN Insider than if we made articles on our site customer. And if you're a magazine subscriber for ESPN, it's also free um, digitally. If you like reading that way, uh, it's both. So nice tie in there. I think it's a really convenient tie in. Um, I enjoy the articles on there. Uh, also, let's see, where do I leave off? Uh, I think the last thing we did was we gave at FB Outsiders on Twitter. Um, what else do you want to mention? Oh, I want to ask you this just because we're based in Buffalo. Will you be on WGR weekly this uh, year as well? I don't think I did weekly last year. I think I did like monthly. So monthly? I'll probably monthly. Okay, so you can listen for probably Aaron. do like monthly appearances. Yeah, he appears on the show from the Bulldog show. Um, about uh, a monthly, I guess they're at uh, about that rate. You can listen for Aaron there. It's always great. Shope and Aaron uh, work incredibly well together. Um, I think that they think about the same. And uh, Aaron is, or excuse me, Mike is great at getting uh, really good information out of Aaron. Uh, probably much better than I was. And also, if you're a big Bills fan, they do talk specifically about the Bills and their opponents, things like that. So I really recommend that spot. What else do you want to put over before we let you go, Aaron, in terms of... Just one other thing I'll point yeah. out is... Uh, well, two other things. The first is that to get the book, the PDF, you go to our site, theballoutsiders.com. You can also get the physical book through us, or you can get the physical book through Amazon, as well as the Kindle. We also have our fantasy projections. We call the Kubiak projections. I named them that before Kubiak became a head coach. So I wish I had named it something different, but too late. <laughs> uh, they cost $20.00 for a uh, workbook that you can update throughout the, that updates throughout the preseason and you can customize to your league, but you can also get them for free with the deal that we have with the daily fantasy site, DraftKings.com. If you start a brand new account with DraftKings.com for $10, you can get our Kubiak projections absolutely free. So go to FootballOutsiders.com for that. And if you did pay full price, $20 for the year, that's basically like buying two magazines, uh, fantasy football magazines, which are like 9 bucks each, off the shelf, which are printed in like April or something, and completely outdated. If you go this way, you got something that was totally updated, updated on the 23rd. For yeah. Green Bay wide receivers. Right, up to date through that. Aaron, uh, thank you so much for the time. I know you're busy. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for going out of your way to make this happen, and I hope that um, we set everything up for you perfectly so people can find all the great uh, information uh, that you guys provide for the NFL. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, too. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. I want to thank Aaron Schatz from FootballOutsiders.com. Got to be careful with that name because if you're looking at it, like, it looks like Schatz. It looks like Schatz. Yeah. Um, thanks to Aaron for being on the show and that almanac is worth every dollar if you're interested in that kind of a thing. All right. Book club season five, episode 25 has an interview with the best team money can buy author Molly Knight. It's a book about the Los Angeles Dodgers wild struggle to build a baseball powerhouse. I give it my highest uh, recommendation. Yeah, you have it's since before she was on. So. Absolutely a candidate for Book Club Book of the Year. Uh, fantastic. Uh, also, I thought the interview was fantastic. Richard Deitch emailed me Did he? to say he thought the interview was fantastic. Um, I think I have my email here. Yes, he does. Uh, he said, uh, Hey, bud, just want to drop a note. 
good work with Molly Knight. Nice. So thank you to Richard Deitch. I'll let Molly know he enjoyed that. Always interesting to know what yeah, he's always kind of does like... and doesn't. The mind of Richard Deitch. <laughs> <Yeah. podcast. laughs> How he knew she was on, I don't know. Yeah, he's one of the more interesting uh, also, friends we have. In a minute, we are going to interview a friend of ours, Adam Lazarus, about his new book, Hell to the Redskins, Gibbs, the Diesel, the Hogs, and the Glory Days of DC's Football Dynasty, plus Doug, Dexter, Daryl, Rip, Theisman, the Posse, the Fun Bunch, and the rest of the gang. Uh, I'm just sort of into this, maybe 50 pages or so. I'm also uh, reading our other book. Since uh, uh, since Adam is a friend, I said you can come on any time you want, mm-hmm. and he's decided today is the time he wants. Oh, cool. So in a minute, we're going to take a break. We're going to go to Adam, talk to Adam about the book, and he's going to be a part of this podcast uh, regardless of Masked Man or whatever uh, because he he wanted this spot. This is the day he wanted. The book, I think, comes out next week or something. Uh, we'll get all the details from Adam, but either way, we'll – be plugging it in this segment for a month like we always promise our book club uh participants uh the third book allison chains the untold story by david d sola i told you last week how much i loved it and today i'm here to tell you i love it even more sweet uh last week i was at the point of facelift being released uh since i've read a lot about their early touring uh extreme was a band that treated them like shit just sort of laughable extreme like they was like that more than, than words, words? Yeah. yeah okay uh that was their first tour with extreme yeah huh? they were wow. assholes um talked about having fun with ozzy uh doing pranks with van halen uh those are bands that maybe treat them a little bit better wow that's, yeah even if you're not an allison chains guy that's... there's talk about how cameron crow essentially paid for sap to be recorded oh yeah um, because he wanted a song for singles. Okay. And they gave him such a large quote that they had so much studio time that they basically recorded <laughs> Sap. Uh, why it's called Sap. Uh, what else did I read this week? I read about now I'm up to the point where they're getting ready to record and write Dirt. So it's it's awesome. I love it. So – the best team money can buy the Los Angeles Dodgers wild struggle to build a baseball powerhouse by Molly Knight. You can hear Molly um, season five, episode 25 in a second. You're going to hear Adam Lazarus hail to the Redskins, Gibbs, the diesel, the hogs and the glory days of DC's football dynasty. And very soon uh, I emailed with uh, the publicist. I think this was since last show. Um, she was just checking in and very soon we will be having David DeSola to talk about Allison chains, the untold story. Uh, potentially as quickly as next week. Uh, right. but he'll be on soon. All right, we're going to take a break and come back with Adam. Our next guest lives in Atlanta, Georgia, where he goes to all the Falcons home games just to boo them for me. 
he is a graduate of Kenyon College and um, is the author of a new book, Hail to the Redskins, Gibbs, the Diesel, the Hogs, and the Glory Days of DC's Fantasy Football. He's one of the few people in the world who have ever hosted this show. We're really excited to have him. A warm sportscasters, welcome to Adam Lazarus. What's going on, Adam? Not much. I'm glad to glad to be back and uh, looking forward to the start of the NFL season. Now, I assume that I'm about let's see nine, chapter nine, chapter ten. I just passed the pictures in the book. Uh-huh. Now, normally I would have read the whole book, but I got it late. And you know all that. But I'm assuming that most of the second half of the book is about Angela Rippon, her birth, <laughs> and her ascension into hotness and internet fame. Is that a correct ass- uh, assumption? Um, I don't think I would have gotten very far uh, with, with interviewing Mark Rippon if that was the case. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, and I, I don't... I actually think... I'm, I think his other daughter is mentioned in the book because she was born, like, during one of those seasons... I think I just mentioned that, but I think it's the the older sister. So no, I don't think her and her illustrious uh, LFL career it takes much place uh, takes up many pages in the book. But I guess you have to buy it to find out. Right, I'm, su- I'm surprised. I'm surprised that she didn't get more run. You did book. look at the pictures though, so maybe you know if there's any pictures in there, you could mention that. Oh yeah, I see. Yeah, no, I haven't looked at them. Anyway, I regress. Uh, digress. Um, so, here's the thing that happened recently. I was talking to one of our baseball guests, one of the good friends of the show. Mm-hmm. And right before we were starting, we were just kind of, uh, we were just kind of joking around. and Or, not joking around, but just kind of talking. He's finishing up a book right now. And he's getting ready to think about what his next book would be. And he's just like, what's a good baseball book that you would want to read? And we were just kind of talking about it. And I was thinking of, like, the 90 Braves don't really have, like, a really great book yet that's... Mm-hmm. something and we were kind of going over some things and I was thinking of you today I was getting ready for this and I was thinking about how you probably had a similar conversation or moment after you finished your last book where you were like okay what should be next so I'm wondering mm-hmm. how did you get to the Redskins why this topic um that's obviously uh it took a long time to get there actually um I think I went through a lot of ideas, like like sort of what happened. I think um, I I remember there's two things that stood out to me. One, I, I you know I I was trying to think of like just the base things that I like about the NFL and that I remember from my childhood and stuff. And the thing that I that I always remember when I come back to when I how I got to this topic, um, I remember always when I was a kid going to games with my dad. And at halftime, you know, we'd always talk about, like, what was going to happen in the second half, what went wrong in the first half, you know, what they need to do to get better in the second half. And my dad used to always talk about Joe Gibbs. He used to always say, Joe Gibbs, and he's not a Redskins fan, and I wasn't a Redskins fan growing up, so it's not like this is something uh, he was a fan of. He used to always say how Joe Gibbs was, was the greatest second half at coach adjustments. Um, he used to always come out of the locker room, his teams would always play better. Um, in the second half, I did in the first half, and it was because Gibbs was such a great master of the second half adjustments. And for some reason, that really stuck with me. And I, when I was thinking of um, some of the iconic people in this iconic times in the NFL over the last 50 years or so, and I was kind of surprised that not that many people really tackled the Gibbs story and, and the teams that Gibbs 
built and, and, and the personalities on that team. And I think that got me pushed in that direction. Um, and the other thing was, and I guess this is kind of relevant to what's going on in, in the world today, um, I was just kind of surprised, not to say paint myself as a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or conservative, but I, I thought it was so funny that um, most Republicans, which is, you know, half this country, talk about Reagan, Ronald, President Ronald Reagan, as, you know, the the patriarch of the Republican Party and yeah, how the glory day. days of America yeah. were the 80s when Reagan was president. And that perfectly overlapped with the glory days of the Redskins. Um, so you had this dynasty in, in football terms, and you, to many people you had this dynasty in uh, political terms in, in, in the president. Um, and I thought that was kind of amazing. So I, I kind of went down that road. I thought I was going to sort of overlap the stories more than I did. It still has a pretty big place in the book, but um, that kind of got me thinking, you know, how, how did these two dynasties overlap at the same time? And that sort of got me towards more the the Redskins story. And when I found Gibbs and, and who he was, more of his background and, and his personality. It kind of hooked me on, on making that more of the central part of the book. You know, with your last book, you had two obvious characters, you know, in Montana and Young. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. these are going to be some big characters in the book. And we just read uh, Molly Knight's new book about the Dodgers. And mm-hmm. is the same with your book with, about the Redskins here. It's like, it's going to be about... There's going to be some characters in the book, but maybe going in, you don't exactly know who they're going to be. Um, you know, with her, that's Granky and uh, is a huge character, and Puig and, and Jose Uribe. And as I've been reading this, I've been kind of looking for who the characters to emerge. And the first one that emerges very clearly in the book um, is the guy on the cover. Uh, yeah. Yeah, in, in John uh, Riggins. Yeah, you're right that uh, you're absolutely right that you don't always know who when you do sort of the ensemble cast book. You you have an idea who the stars are going to be, um, but you always want to uncover some of the the lesser knowns or the underdogs or the people that are forgotten. And that was a lot of fun in this book. Uh, obviously, like like you said, Riggins probably um, after Gibbs is is probably the number one figure uh, in terms of pe- what people remember of that dynasty. Um, there's other people who were sort of um, essential to this book, and uh, Doug Williams, and Joe Theismann, uh, along with Gibbs and, and Riggins, and Dexter Manley becomes a really important per- person in this book. He's sort of the uh, the end of the book is sort of about Dexter Manley. Uh, but there were a lot of people who I sort of quote unquote discovered uh, or rediscovered. For me, it was discovering, but for I think other people, it was, re- it was rediscovering. Um, that I find really interesting. One of them was uh, Barry Wilburn, who was a great safety for the for the Redskins in one of their Super Bowl years, and had a very short career that was sort of derailed by drugs and, and things like that. When that was sort of a, really had a, a big place in the NFL at the time, in the late eighties. Um, but he was a very interesting figure in the book. Uh, there were some co- there were some assistant coaches, some scouts, um, some players. Timmy Smith, who most people know as the one-shot wonder with the Super Bowl record for rushing yards and sort of did very little after that. Um, he was right. a person who I knew I would profile in the book, but I didn't realize would have more than just the Super Bowl story. Um, there, there were a lot of people. Uh, and there's, there's one scout who uh, I actually got to know pretty well 
during this book who ended up having a pretty prominent place in, in Chapter 4 and some other parts of the book. Uh, who, you know, he's not well-known for being a, you know, he never became a, a GM or a system GM, so he didn't rise to that level of fame. But um, he was really interesting. He had a really interesting career. He was, I think, pretty important to the development of, of the front office and scouting and things like that. And So, that, like, you're absolutely right. You do find some of the gems here and there, especially if you're going to do the, you know, the work. If you don't go into writing a book project sort of single-minded or narrow-minded, um, but that's sort of a give and take. Is you know, it's hard to plan a book when you don't have an idea with everything's mapped out. But sometimes the map takes you in different directions. Well, it's tricky too, right? Because not always are the stars the most interesting characters necessarily. Of course, they're the stars, yeah, and, and they're going to be a, a big part of the book. But they're not always like incredibly interesting and, and fun. No, I think that um, you know you, you can just look at today's NFL. Uh, I mean, Peyton Manning's probably the biggest person in the NFL, or maybe Brady is, I don't know, it's probably a toss-up, but I, I, I would be, you'd be hard-pressed to hear anyone say he's the most interesting player in the NFL. Right. They, he flipped the coin, and, you know, people love Gronk. He's, he's definitely the best tight end in football, and he's one of the most dominant players in his position, but people seem to love him and his personality, and uh, so, you know, that's, when, when you know, there's no Hall of Fame for personality. So it doesn't work like that. I, but I think sometimes you run across some guys who are both uh, uh, amazing talent and you know the outspoken personalities. Uh, Art Monk was a good example of that in this book. Um, I mean, people who know football know how great Art Monk was and the, the records he put up and the consistency he put up. But he was and just quiet and subdued and you know um, the anti superstar in a way. Uh, as anyone of that period and, and anyone of, of the last, you know, 40 years of the NFL. Few people know anything about him other than his catches. Um, and he, he wanted it that way, it really seems like. So you do, uh, you know, there's a nice balance of, of the stars and the, and the personalities, and occasionally you run across guys who are both, and I think Riggins was one of those. Um, Dexter Manley was another one. And Theismann was certainly a, a, an interesting figure and, and, and a great player for a, a short period of time. Now, Rick, so um, it, it's a fun it's a fun journey to sort of uncover and discover who who you're going to write about. Riggins is probably the biggest name in the book that didn't talk to you. Why? Why? You know, I, 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 the response I got from some people of his uh, who were close to him. Um, funny that doesn't always turn out to be the right people to go to but um was that he doesn't do as many interviews and you know he sort of didn't try to stay out of the spotlight or whatever uh which you know it's fine i mean you know i know that there's it's kind of kind of double-edged sword to to get all the interviews and to not get all the interviews because you want to put your mark on the story but you also want to um have the people who were involved tell their story uh but Riggins was, I was fortunate that Riggins had said so much over the years right. that I could use a lot mm-hmm. of the, the clips and stuff and the things that he'd said over time. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know why he didn't want to do an interview for this book. For this book. He, is, he was known as sort of being, um, I won't say a recluse, but someone who was very unpredictable with who, when he would talk and who he would talk to. I know that, I think, I, I think Gary Pomerantz was a, was a a sports writer for the Post for several years, and, and d- during that era, 
and I interviewed him for this book, and he was fantastic. He had the, he wrote uh, Their Life's Work, the book on the Steelers um, of the seventies, and he was fantastic. Gave me a lot of time, and had a lot of great insight. And I'm pretty sure I remember him telling me that he knew when he would go in the locker room, he just wasn't going to get to talk to Riggins. It was sort of a foregone conclusion that um, hmm. Riggins wouldn't talk to... There was a period, I know, when he came back from retirement that he, he basically had a self-imposed media ban, which he broke when the Redskins went to the Super Bowl the first time, and then he sort of started to unload, and, and he would give a lot of more of those more colorful quotes that he was known for. But uh, there was a period where he just wouldn't talk to media. I, I don't know why. I think he was kind of, he, I don't know if he enjoyed his privacy or if he enjoyed being sort of mysterious. I think that might be one of his appeals. Um, you know, the funny thing is, though, you know, he, he's kind of he's back in, TV, in the radio now and he's had his own TV show, so it's kind of weird. I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for why he wouldn't talk to me, uh, but uh, I'm sure he would have given some great um, additions to the book, but I, I certainly thought, I think I did a pretty good job profiling him without his, his uh yeah i was fascinated by him i mean i didn't even know he was had to be coaxed back into the league by gibbs you know i didn't know that at all and i thought he was really interesting and i got a chuckle out of the one part in the book where he greets gibbs with a beer not knowing gibbs won't drink it and his uh his solution to that is he just drank them both i thought that was really funny yeah um that was a that's that's a fun starting place for the book. Uh, yeah, yeah, that is at the very beginning, of, isn't it? The two titans yeah. of the book, in a way, uh, Gibbs and, and Riggins. It's a, it's a story that Rigg, that Gibbs himself has told many times. I think I was able to uncover some more of the facts that, you know, have, uh, he's told that story so many times, and I think he has it on autopilot that, I, I, you know, I dug up some more of the facts that are in the book and, and paint, paint the scene a little more. So I, I think that's a good launching point for the book. And um, it came out, retelling that story came out good with, uh, with some of Gibbs' help. Yeah, I always feel bad for you guys. And, 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 you know, just to me, it's like I'm reading this Allison Chains book. It's another book we're working on this month. And I, I love it. This guy, oh, he did an amazing job with this book. But none of the living members talked to him. And I guess they kind of pulled the shoot at the last second. It just seems so silly to me. Because in the end, in both cases, whether it's Riggins or it's Allison Chains, I have the books in my hand. I mean, the books got written. You know, so mm-hmm. why not? Why not have your side? And I don't get it. I don't know, but I'm not famous, I guess. So. Well, you know, I found I found that um, I think you know this is my fourth book of this kind of style. You know, with a, a sporting event, the history of a sporting event, or an era, or a team, or a player, or whatever. From that, most you know, a good percentage of the people are still alive. Um, I found that a lot of the guys, I think they don't want to go out on a limb. Like, let's say you're doing a book on, you know, the Big Red Machine. Mm-hmm. I think you don't want to, you know, Pete Rose or Bench or Joe Morgan or whoever is going to be like, is going to be literally, I don't want to be the only one who goes on the record. But sometimes when I was, you know, I'd get a few interviews here and there, and then I would say, you know, I talked to so-and-so, and I, you know, this person and I had a great interview. I think that sort of helps. I think, you know, I can understand that, too, because, you know, you don't want to be the one who feels like they're the one telling tales out of school, you know? Right. Yeah, um, no, that's a good point. So I think that that sort of makes it... But if you have more, you know, the more people you have involved, the better. Um, but then some people just, you, you can't convince everybody to, to get involved with projects like this. Well, the good news for Big Red Machine fans is I do think Joe Piznancy got all of them to go on the record, and it is a good book. So if you're interested in the Big Red Machine, Joe Piznansky did a great job uh, laying it out there. Um... 
Hail to the Redskins, Gibbs, the Diesel, the Hogs, and the Glory Days of DC's football dynasty. So the Hogs is kind of one of these things that sticks out when you think about the Redskins, especially this era. Mm-hmm. And offensive linemen certainly are a group of players that can tend to be characters. Um, tell us a little bit about going from probably someone like me who just kind of knows the Hogs, right? Um to being someone who's now researched them and wrote a book about them and kind of what stuck out and who the characters are. Tell us uh, more about the Hogs and, and why we should read more about them in Hell to the Redskins. Well, you know, the, not to... Uh, I, I don't like to talk about myself at all, but, you know, I, I played football and I was an offensive lineman and for for um, in, in high school and college. And... Uh, the thing they always say about offensive line, and this is why I bring it up, is you know it's a unit. It's five guys. One guy screws up, and it screws up the whole play for for everyone else. So those guys have to work in unison. Um, that, that's sort of like the core principle of offensive line in a way, um, where you're only weak, you're only strong as your weakest link, or whatever cliche you want to use. And I thought that that was interesting the way that the hogs. Um, bonded as a group and, you know, on and off the field. That was sort of the thing that stood out to me was they were very young. Um, there were a bunch of young guys. They had a, the, one of the original hogs. There was a, a veteran who, George Stark, who had been in the league for, I think, 10 years. He was sort of the old veteran. But the other four guys were all basically rookies. Um, Jacoby, May, Grimm, so they and Bostic. Jacoby, May, right. Bostic, and Grimm. They right. all basically were rookies. In '81, the first year of the Hogs, Jeff Bostic had played the year before, but he hadn't started. He was sort of, a, you know, first first time really making his contribution to the Redskins in the NFL at all was was that '81 season when uh, Jacoby Grimm and and uh, May were all rookies. So they sort of grew up together, and this is the way they explained it to me: was you know at the five o'clock club, this group that they um, they all hung out in the shed. It was it was mostly offensive linemen. With Riggins, it was sort of Riggins thing. There's a lot about it in the book. You can see, you can read it to yeah, learn about how that got started. But they all sort of bonded together, and they all told. They basically told me they all sort of grew up together. Um, they were all, you know, 22, 23, and I'm not sure um, exactly if they were married or just starting out with their families, or exactly what the case was. But they all sort of grew up together, and I thought that was something that I, I really was, um, you know, really stood, stood out to me was that. They, they grew up together. They had this sort of rallying. They had a couple like mentors in Stark, who was this aged veteran who, who knew the game inside and out. But then Riggins was sort of a their pipe piper in a way, and, and Joe Bugle, who's the offensive line coach, was another sort of mentor for them. But the, the other guys, they all sort of grew up together, and I thought that um, made for an interesting way to gel an offensive line. You know, they always talk about in the NFL today. You know, you got to have when you're starting a new offensive line every game or, or every other game that it, it's, you know, this lack of continuity and lack of cohesion, um, the chemistry. So I thought that was what I most, well, most appealed to me about the beginning, sort of the gestation of the hogs and how they all rallied behind this nickname and they got involved in marketing it. And they gave a lot of the money that they made from marketing it to charity. And they sort of became celebrities that way. So I thought it was kind of neat the way they all sort of, made their mark together. It wasn't like, you know, Orlando Pace with the Rams. You know, he was 
when you think of the Rams, how, how great the Rams are, line, why don't you think of Orlando Pace? Um, but the Hogs, it was sort of this group of guys who were all at the same time playing very, you know, playing together and playing exceptional, um, making Riggins look good. So I think that was what most sort of makes the Hogs a unique bunch for this book, but also sort of um, the other thing was, you know, I don't think the, the offensive line ever got its due at, at that time um, for being, uh, you know, the, the centerpiece of a football team. Uh, you know, there were great offensive lines before that, sure, but they were certainly overshadowed by, you know, Gale Sayers or, or Unitas or, or the Steelers and, and Bradshaw and, and things like that. I think, in a way, as big as a figure as Riggins was and Gibbs was and Seisman, in a way, the Hogs were the centerpiece of that dynasty, mainly because they lasted so long. I mean, three of them of the founding members of the Hogs lasted for the entire decade, from the 80s into 92. Right. So I think that was what stands out to me about the Hogs, was their longevity and the fact that they sort of transcended this boring, you know, grunt work of the offensive line that most people associate with the offensive line. They were the centerpiece of the, of the Redskins. And, and I think if you polled most people... Um, and they would say, what, what stands out to you about the Redskins dynasty, the Gibbs dynasty? If you get past Gibbs, who's sort of, you know, the, the founder of everything, I think that most people would say it was the Hogs. And I think that's a special thing that you don't see in the NFL. I mean, you might say that about the Cowboys dynasty of the 90s because their offensive line was so great. But the fact that Aikman and Emmett and Michael Irvin were such big personalities, I think that it, it doesn't have the same magnitude. So that's sort of why the Hogs, I think, are important and why they have such an uh, important place in the book. You know, it's interesting you bring them up, too, because Jeff Perlman has a book about that Cowboys-era team. Mm-hmm. And even having read only about eight chapters of your book, I can absolutely say that the focus here on the Hogs is much greater than in that story about the the Cowboys. So um, sort of proves your point. But, you know, one thing that music and even the WWE – kind of gets right that I think sports doesn't and I see both sides is that like the Beatles are in the Hall of Fame as a group but Paul McCartney is in there as well the only hog that's in the Hall of Fame is Russ Grimm right but the hogs very much could be as a group that's a Hall of Fame group right now I can understand why it's not done and you can even say it's gimmicky but do you think any of these other guys really deserve Hall of Fame mention I think, uh, and there's a movement that I know uh, that the Hogettes, who are the big sort of cheerleaders of the Redskins of the Hogs of the 80s, were really big, and they, I think they, they even got like a Visa commercial one year. Um, they're real big into getting Joe Jacoby into the Hall of Fame, and I, I think it's, it's almost a no-brainer that he belongs in the Hall of Fame. Um, he, and, you know, he and Grimm worked together. They were on the same side on the offensive line side, it's hard. You know how, you know, sometimes did, when there's a pair of guys, putting both in is always problematic, you know, um, because how much did one depend on the other? So I think that might color it a little bit. Uh, but but Jacoby was, you know, the blindside tackle for part of it. Um, he played both right and left. He was, a, I think he was a four straight he was a four-time All-Pro or four straight All-Pros. Um, you know, he was facing Reggie White and Randy White and Harvey and Harvey Martin and Tuttle Jones 
and a lot of those great players, those Bears front, Richard Dent, uh, he, he, he went up against those guys in pass protection. He was the centerpiece of the, the counterplay that was so essential for the Redskins' offense. He was the pulling tackle that came around and plowed open the hole, essentially the lead blocker for whoever was carrying the ball, whether it was Wiggins or, or Timmy Smith or, or Ernest Biner. Um, so I think, I'm not sure why he's not remembered quite as well as some of the other great offensive linemen. Uh, it might be because the Hogs are sort of this collective group, like you said, uh, and maybe because Grimm got in, so every, some, some people, some voters feel like, you know, they paid their homage to the, to the Hogs by putting Grimm in. Um, but I think it, it's pretty surprising that Jacoby hasn't gotten in. I think eventually he will. Um, but you know, if you're going to say it's the greatest offensive line of all time, or be more than in one end. discussion, yeah, to have more than to have one guy, there should be there should be you know two guys. It's funny because Gene Upshaw and uh, Art Shell were both in, and they played next to each other for the Raiders for all those years. So I, I think there's a precedent for Grimm and, and Jacoby both going at the same time, or both going in eventually. And interesting that it's the guard and not the tackle. And um, sadly, the Hogats uh, claim to have retired and. 2013, but hopefully, yeah. hopefully they haven't retired on their campaign for uh, Jacoby. Um, there's a turning point, a fork in the road, I think, for this dynasty and this team. You know, they lose the Super Bowl 38 to nine to the Raiders in '84. Um, then uh, Theismann in '85 has the injury, which, when that happened in 1985, I was five years old, and I remember exactly where I was, and I don't know. If it's because I was with my grandmother, um, who shortly after this started to get Alzheimer's and got really sick, and I don't know if it's just because it's like a memory that I can, I can dig out of there that I know I was with her, um, or if it's because of the nature of the injury or what it was. But I remember uh, laying in bed with my grandmother and having that on a really little TV she had in her bedroom, and the reaction from Taylor. We can talk about that more later, but um, not to to get off track is you know they lose the Super Bowl and then Theismann gets injured and um, you mentioned uh, uh, Stark was the veteran of the group and he retires um, and it just seems like it could have really went went down there that that's like the turning point for Gibbs and the Gibbs uh, Redskins and then of course they instead of going left or whatever they went right what about this this point as kind of something I'd identified as a turning point? Do you agree, um, or am I just making kind of a leap by jumping? No, no. I think I mean I think you absolutely nailed it because um, there certainly is a fork in the road. And the funny thing is, to, to me, you know, in retrospect, with all the hindsight of, of what took place afterwards, uh, it was it wasn't the direction they went in a direction that they wanted to go in with Jay Schrader, this is quarterback that they had found and sort of essentially discovered. I mean, people knew who he was, but they, he was a project that they made into a pro bowler, and they thought he was going to be the quarterback who took them you know, back to, to glory and was going to be there for 10 years and be a, the next Joe Theismann. And it turns out that Doug Williams, who was sort of this re, rehabilitation project, who had been out of the NFL for four years and He's the one who leads him back to the Super Bowl and, and a Super Bowl victory, and one of the most remarkable episodes in Super Bowl history, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, you know, that's this 
there's the rebuilding of the of the Redskins that takes place in '85, which you're right, it is sort of the the exclamation point of Steisman breaking his leg on Monday night against uh, the Giants and LT. Um, that was sort of the, I think the first great example of Gibbs's remarkable ability to adapt uh, and adapt adapt his person adapt his offense and his approach to the personnel. Instead of fitting a round peg in a square hole, he adjusted things to what he had. You know, he had lost Riggins essentially after '85. He he had to re- basically retired. I mean, they, he wasn't the same player, so they let him go. But he he retired after that, and Sizen's gone, and uh, they traded away their all pro uh, their Pro Bowl receiver Charlie Brown, uh, who wasn't happy. They traded him to Atlanta. They make all these changes. They do keep the offensive line fairly constant. And, and most of the defense, too. But uh, Gibbs manages to adjust and uh, find Doug Williams and finds more of this big play explosive offense. That was what really led them to being to that Super Bowl in 87, was that they were this explosive big play offense. They didn't have the consistency, really, that they had with the diesel and the, you know, the seven yards here and the 12 yards here and, and these nine play 85 yards eight-minute drives. I think they were more of an explosive offense that could score when they had to um, and put points on the board in bunches to make up deficits or put games away. And I think that was something that kids recognized in, in the group that he had, that this was the offense, you know, this is what I have. I'm going to shape it to, to work for us instead of trying to um, put everything into what's been, the, you know, in, what's worked in the past might not work today. And I think that was what he had become really good at. He had, he had been through, you know, that's one of the reasons why the biography of Gibbs that says this book, I think it's important, is, is who the who he learned from. He had a lot of coaching mentors who were big um, in college football before he got to the NFL. And Don Coryell is usually known as, as the biggest figure, but he also coached for um, Bill Peterson. He coached with Bill Peterson. He coached with Frank Goyles. Um, he coached with John McKay. So I think he picked up a lot of these tools along the way. Uh, and he saw how to be a, a great coach, and a great coach adapts. And in 85, 86, 87, that's exactly what the Redskins did to become Super Bowl champions. Again, they adapted. They didn't scrap everything. You know, that's, if you want to say that's a panic move or whatever, you know, that might be a way to look at it. You know, starting from scratch, rebuilding is, is panicking. But I think he was able to do a lot on the fly, and that was what his greatest strength was. Um, and it worked for them uh, for beginning in '86. They were a very good team in '86. After all this turmoil with uh, you know Riggins retiring and Dyson, uh retiring, uh, losing some players, '86 they went to the NFC Championship game. They lost to the Giants, who won the Super Bowl that year. And then the next year, a lot of turmoil again. But but Gibbs um, was able to c- continually you know, on the fly and make the right moves and make insert the right players here, make the right adjustments here, and it resulted in that second Super Bowl. Well, you know, I want to talk to you a little bit about that 87 season because obviously on a national level, it's mostly known for being the year that I fell in love with the Saints in that first playoff game against the Vikings. <laughs> I know that that gets a lot mm-hmm. of the press. But kind of as a B story or a semi-main event that year was obviously there was a strike kind of that played out in the middle mm-hmm. of the season. And, you know, the, the Saints had to play that wild card game because they couldn't beat the 49ers. And the 49ers were a really strong team. Um, 
And you write a little bit, you write a lot actually in the book about Gibbs's strength coming out of the strike. And um, I wanted to ask you if you thought that that would have been a team that could have went into San Francisco and beaten the 49ers if they didn't get Minnesota, who I guess just got hot, to do a little bit of the dirty work for them. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I know I mean, it's really it's speculative, but, but you're you're right. I mean, the best team in football that year was the San Francisco Forty Nine. Right, there's very you know, and all I think I think they were number one in both pass either either scoring or total defense and total offense. They were w- number one on on both sides of the ball. Yeah, they were thirteen you know, and two. Yeah, and they had you know they had Montana and they had uh, uh, Jerry Rice was starting to come into his own and their their defense was fantastic and John Taylor was becoming a big player for them too. Um, I, I I agree that you know if if the Redskins had to play the Forty ers especially if they would have been in Candlestick, uh, I don't think the Redskins win that game. <laughs> but that's not how it played out. And you're right, the the Vikings were just a bad match. You know, the Vikings were just a bad matchup for everybody. They very yeah. well could have beaten the Redskins in the NFC Championship game. It came down to literally the last play of the game. Right, 17-10. Uh, so there was just something about that team. You know, it, it was sort of, I guess you could almost compare it to the way, you know, the Giants got hot a couple years ago, and the Packers got hot a couple years ago, the Steelers got hot a couple years ago. All I think they were all six seeds. The Vikings were sort of the same way uh, with Wade Wilson, a, a quarterback, and Anthony Carter, um, and, a, and a very good defense. But... Uh, you're right. Uh, I think, <laughs> in a way, the Redskins do owe that that Vikings team a little bit of uh, a thank you for for knocking the Forty ers out. And uh, yes, I do know the Saints beat the Forty ers on November fifteenth, nineteen eighty seven, twenty six, twenty four. What I meant is that you know they had a play because the Forty ers won the division with a better record. Um, another interesting part of this team in this book in this era is the three different quarterbacks. Uh, winning the three different mm-hmm. Super Bowls, and obviously, they're very different quarterbacks when you look at them historically. I mean, you have Theismann, who's the guy who went to Notre Dame and like changed his name to rhyme with his Heisman gimmick thing, and uh, has this horrific injury on TV. And then there's uh, the middle uh, quarterback, like uh, Williams. Who's you know known as a trailblazer to some extent, uh, and then there's Rippin, this kind of different than both of them in the sense that he's a, sort of a one-hit wonder again in a way, and kind of has mm-hmm. certainly been a longer politician than he ever was a quarterback. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, the differences and similarities between the three quarterbacks and how their narratives maybe drove this book a little bit. Well, I think um, the the common trait that I would I would draw from all three of them was you're right they were almost and if you could have three people be completely different opposites then that's kind of how they were especially in terms of where they were in their careers but um, they all you know I, I talked to a lot of the teammates a lot of the players uh, of of all those eras and they all those guys had a kind of a a command of the huddle. You know, there was a leadership that all three of those guys had. Um, Theismann, I don't know if, it, my guess would be was more, Theismann was sort of, you know, you know that fine line between arrogant and cocky, or arrogant and confident. I mean, uh, I think a lot of the guys fed off that, was that Theismann was very confident. 
Um, and him believing in himself as much as he did made them believe in themselves. And a lot of the guys were younger at that point. It was a much younger team when Thiessen was the quarterback. Um, so I think that was sort of Thiessen's leadership style. Doug Williams um, had just just had such I don't know exactly what you would call it. It, it was confidence. It was um, it was almost it was respect. It was almost awe. I could tell there was a lot of a lot of the guys were not necessarily. Um, awed by his presence, but by his confidence or his um, assurity in the huddle. And I think uh, that helped bring them together and helped give him the presence to be the commander-in-chief when they needed him in, in tough times, because there certainly were a lot of tough times in the playoffs that year. And Rippin was, uh, was um, like you said, you know, his career was short. Uh, he's, he's not going to be in the Hall of Fame. But he also had, there was, he commanded a lot of respect from those players, especially the Hogs. There's a, there's a line in the book that um, one of the uh, offensive linemen, one of the Hogs at that time, Raleigh McKenzie, almost looked at Rippin like he was one of the Hogs. That's how tough and um, gritty he was. And um, I think they fed off that. So in a way, it was, you know, their arm strength or mobility or accuracy or whatever you want to say. It sort of took second, it was sort of a secondary um compared to what those guys brought to the huddle in terms of leadership and inspiring the other guys to believe in them and believe in themselves and believe in the scheme and, and everything like that. So that's what I would say was sort of the common trait. Uh, as far as, you know, the differences between the guys, Theisen was, was very mobile. Um, he was smaller. He, he was mobile. He, he had very good accuracy. He made a lot of plays, sort of, I, I guess you would call them improvised plays and uh, he, he certainly had the benefit of the best running game of any of them because he had thigh, he had Riggins, um, and he, you know, he uh, had Gibbs sort of he had Gibbs his ear I think a little bit here and there um, for in, you know deciding what they could do because Gibbs was sort of a, a new coach I think he respected Thyssen's uh, experience and his his intuitive um, approach to the game. Uh, William, Doug Williams was sort of just, you know, he wasn't terribly mobile. He wasn't terribly consistent, but he had a knack for making big plays, and I think that's what carried that offense, like I was saying earlier, was um, how that offense had such an ability to score points when they needed to score points. It wasn't necessarily a consistent offense, but it was a productive offense when they needed it to be. Um, and, he had, you know, he could make the deep throw that was important. And the other thing about Rippon was, and I was surprised to hear, Gibbs say this was he was one of the most intelligent quarterbacks or players he'd ever been around. So I think Rippon was the most um, instinctual or headstrong quarterback of the group and just really knew what Gibbs, they were sort of on the same page as two, especially later, you know, sort of the end of the dynasty when Gibbs was, had, had mastered everything and put that offense together and, and sort of was the genius that everybody remembers him today. I think he and, and Rippon were in such sync, especially in that Super Bowl year, but that's what really carried the offense. You know, that Super Bowl team, obviously, they beat the Bills, and um, they killed the Bills. I mean, the year before, the Bills should have won. They blew that one, and you wrote a book all about that. Um, but in this one, I just remember watching it, and I know – I think the Bills got some garbage points later, and maybe even the Redskins yeah. took their foot off the brakes. Maybe the score doesn't look as big as it was, but no, it should they have been. It was 37-24. It really should have been thirty-seven ten. 
mean, yeah. yeah. They killed them. Um, but why was that it for that team? I mean, they seemed so strong, um, but that was it. What happened after uh, that year that kind of prevented them from – was it just the Cowboys and 49ers were so good, or, or what was it about that? Well, you know, it was certainly – you know, in 92, they made the playoffs. They had a good year, not a great year. They made the playoffs. They won a playoff game. Then they went out to San Francisco and got beat by, which was, was now Steve Young's 49ers. Um, but they're at this interesting place in NFL history with the cap and free agency. And you add into that the fact that Joe Gibbs retired. There's this period, March 1993. Uh, the, the NFL, for, for the Washington Redskins, Everything completely changes. You know, the salary cap and free agency are implemented. It's the exact same week that Joe Gibbs retires from the NFL. Um, so I think that, you know, you don't want to put it all on, on, on one person or one scenario, but that had a huge impact, I think. They lost Gibbs. Um, they started to lose players. They couldn't really stockpile as much talent as they wanted to because the cap was coming into effect the next year. Um, I think... That was a contributing factor. But the other, you know, you look at the dynasty, a dynasty is never going to, you know, there's always turnover, and the dynasty only has a, so long of a life. And by that point, it had been 12 years, you know, 10, 11 years since they won their first Super Bowl. Um, so I think, you know, it just sort of naturally petered out in a way. Uh, you, every dynasty should be so lucky to have a 10-year run that the, the Redskins had of that period. Um, I mean, even, you, you know, you look at how great the Cowboys were, and they were really great from, I mean, they won Super Bowls from 92 to 95, but they were really a, a great Super Bowl caliber team from 91 to 96, which is half the length the Redskins dynasty was. So, I think, you know, if you're, if you're talking dynasties, you can't really expect much more than a 10-year period, and the Redskins, the Redskins to do that uh, was special. So, um, it was sort of, I think, just natural progression where evolution uh, of the NFL and, and, and how franchises work and that the consolidation of power was going to get even smaller once the free once free agency and the cap were implemented. Hail to the Redskins, Gibbs, the Diesel, the Hogs, and the glory days of D.C.'s football dynasty is going to be released on September 1st, 2015. It's available right now for pre-order which means a good deal. Uh, Amazon.com actually has it um, for $14.84. Uh, you can't beat that. Of course, it's available in hardcover and will be available Kindle, uh, which you can get right now for $13.99, which is an even better deal. Uh, and you can read it on your iPad or whatever device uh, you use. Um, you can follow our buddy Adam on Twitter. He's at laz. A-R-U-S-A-57 and you can go to his website www.alazarus.com to find out more about this book and his other three which are also available on Amazon. Uh, We featured uh, his book on Montana and Young and you can find those interviews in our archives uh, if you look for Adam's previous uh, times in on the podcast. Um, one last thing I want to ask you, and then you're going to talk real quickly about some teams you like this year so people can uh, find out what a great football mind you are um, and then later find out that despite that, it's not quite as great as mine as I will beat you. Uh, but we'll get to that later. Um, 
One thing that you handled really, I thought, well and quickly and appropriately is the whole thing about the name. Um, and you know what? I'm not interested um, really in this topic very much, but it feels like it's something you kind of had to do, right? And uh, I, I, I bring it up only to say I thought you handled it amazingly. And it, it kind of put me in a mindset where when I told Don about this book, uh, the first thing he said to me is, Oh, well, I wonder what he's going to do about the name. And then when I was about to read the book, I remember opening and thinking, oh, my God, I hope it's not like this weird thing with it. And then you just kind of put me at ease right away. It's like kind of like, yeah. you know, I just love the way you did it, really. Well, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a very difficult landmine-filled uh, environment. This this title of the Redskins, um, you know, I, I think what you're alluding to regards with the beginning of the book was I said that in the in the author there's an author's note at the beginning of the book, and I basically said that uh, the 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 team that I'm writing about, which is a story, is a true story. It's about a football team from 1981 to roughly 2007. The the name of the team was the Redskins, so I'm going to refer to them as the Redskins because to to not do that would be historically inaccurate, and it would also be like you were sort of dedicated, clumsy to call them the Washington yeah, it's football just team awkward. all the time. Yeah, it's awkward. Yeah, it's it's very it, it, it's it's a difficult area to negotiate. Um, I my my feeling on the on the name changes on the name is that they should change the name. Um, it's it's become too much of an issue. It's become too much of a distraction. Yeah, I That's agree a major too. thing. I think yep. it's a distraction for the franchise. It's a distraction for the NFL. Um, I think, you know, it, it's not so much changing the name. It's I think a lot of people in the, are, are confused about what they're going to do, what the new name's going to be. You know, it, it, whatever name they choose will probably get crushed by some people as being stupid or, non, you know, unoriginal or whatever. I think that's a headache they don't want to deal with. Um, there's other people who want, you know, preserve history as much as they can. And, you know, I think I, I can respect some of the arguments there. I, I do think the name is, is enough of a problem and it's offensive to enough people with, you know, ju- justifiably so that it's time to change the name. Um, it's got to be so frustrating but, you know, for their fans. I mean, who, you know what I mean? Like, you have to argue with people about it all the time. I mean, even if you're, yeah. no matter what side you're on, you're arguing with someone and... Every time you turn on the TV and watch the game, the guy's either on your side or not. And like you said, the bottom yeah, line know, is, I mean, if it offends enough people, I mean, just change it, move on. I don't know. Well, I don't know. It's, it's funny, you know, I, I realized when I, right around the time I wrote that author's note, um, I, you know, I had a discussion with my editor about it, and I, I was wondering what I was going to say. I, I went to D.C. to do some interviews. I interviewed a handful of people for the book out there, and I have a couple good friends. I have a handful of good friends in DC, and I went over to one of my friends' houses late one night when I was after an interview, and I just went over to you know say hi. I hadn't seen them in several years, um, and his wife, who I also knew, uh, had said something to me, just sort of in passing. She said something like, you know, she is a native native to DC, um, and she said something like. You know, I want to root for the Redskins. I feel like I should because I'm, you know, they're my hometown team. But I just can't because of the name. You know, it's an offensive name, and I don't approve of that. And you know, that kind of stuck with me. I was like, you know, this is something that's hurting the franchise in a way. You know, that's a fan they could have. 
Um, now they could be, you know, the, the flip side is, well, I guess we don't want you if you're not going to, if you're not going to like us because of our name. Um, but you know, it's to their own detriment. And I think that's something that does hurt them. And it, it does put them in an awkward position. The, the only other problem was, you know, the, the, they've had such bad luck on the field the last decade or two decades for the most part that, um, it would give them new life, I guess, in a way. Uh, but they also want to cling to the history. It's just such a complicated um, yeah. scenario that I think the best solution for everyone involved would, might be to just move on and start anew, uh, especially when you have people like, I mentioned this in the book, when you have the President of the United States um, uh, saying, you know, I think it, maybe it's time to change the name, 50 senators, uh, US, sitting U.S. senators wrote a letter to Roger Goodell a couple years ago saying, I think we need to change the name, the Secretary of the Interior is not going to give the team a right to any land in D.C. because the name is um, offensive. Uh, you know, I, I don't think, I think, I, I, and I say this in the book too, I think I agree with the people who think political correctness and, you know, watching how carefully we, we use our words has gotten a little out of hand. There's certainly, uh, I can understand people who feel like that and don't want to have to be silenced all the time. Uh, but I think this is a different kind of political correctness. This is uh, something that I think we would all be we would all benefit from maybe just moving on. Well, you know, I mentioned uh, speaking of moving on, how the book is available at a great price right now on Amazon, and um, I'm just going to take Amazon at their word when they say that customers who bought your book have also bought these books. And I'm looking at it, and they mostly make a lot of sense. Like, there's a book on Nick Saban mm-hmm. and. Uh, the Football Outsiders Almanac, which you talked about earlier on the show. And uh, one that sticks out, though, which is surprising me, is The Art of the Pimp, One Man's Search for Love, Sex, and Money by Dennis Hoff. I wonder if they bought, the, uh, bought them together. I that. I don't know what to say about that. But I wonder uh, if that person I, I, bought them together. Like, you know, I'd really like to learn about the Redskins, and I'd really like to learn about the art of pimping, as told by Dennis Hoff. I, I might have to have a talk with Jeff Bezos about this because it well maybe it brings in a new new uh customer base right so that would be okay i guess because i mean literally the rest of the books are you know mostly football and maybe a baseball one here and there but yeah surprisingly none of your books are ones that uh because you know you'd think oh let me get this one and his other one well it's because they've already bought them all right now, that's if true. If Good you're, point. Uh, if you're going to buy this book, you know of my other three books, which right. are, like you said, available for purchase on Amazon. All right. That's a good point. Now, maybe or maybe not, Don and I, on this podcast, uh, right after you hear this interview, will be revealing our four over-under picks for the year. Uh, it's something we've traditionally been very good at, um, but last year, I was not. Um we mentioned earlier on the podcast that it's slightly fluid. We don't know about the masked man. Is it this week, next week? So we recorded that. Maybe we'll play it. Maybe we'll not. But I asked Adam to play with us this year just because he was going to be on. And um, I thought it would be interesting to get a third um, a third person in on this. So quickly, I'm going to give you my four. Um, and the explanations behind them will either follow this or be a part of the next week's podcast. Uh, but I picked the Saints over eight and a half. We always pick our own teams. Um, I picked Carolina under eight. I picked Minnesota over seven and a half, and Denver under ten and a half. What do you got? What do you like? 
I'm looking at it here. I will take the Steelers at over eight and a half. Okay. Uh, I, I believe in Mike. Big Ben and uh, that defense having being inconsistent but good enough to get the job done against, especially against some of the weaker opponents that the Steelers have to play with. Um, I'm, I'm looking at Jacksonville at over under five and a half. Definitely going to take the over on that. Careful. I, I'm, I'm a big I'm a big believer in um, Lake Bortles. I, I got burned have, by that last right, year. Right action going on there. Yeah, I, I love Jacksonville too, but I, I I went I was adamant about how much I loved them last year, and I said there's no way they're going to well, be four you know, again. You give them another year, you, know, you give Bortles another year, same scheme, same system, same. And Gus Bradley's smart. I mean, yeah, I like Gus. I like the I Jacks. Think, I like that pick. I like it a lot. I'm also looking here at uh, who did I just see? Uh, the um, what was Denver? At? Denver ten and a half. Yeah, I'm going to go against the grain here. I'm going under. Yeah, I did as well. I, I'm, I, I'm pretty. I'm going to go on the record now, uh, and I, I've had some of my fantasy football friends scoff at this, but I see a considerable drop off for Peyton this year. I don't. You know, you look at the guys who have had. You know, their last year in the NFL have been the great quarterback. A lot of them have fallen off the cliff the last year. I, you know, I think a far. Um, I remember Elway didn't play. Elway missed a lot of games this last year. Montana was was riddled with injuries last year of his career. Uh, I think this is going to be a rough year for Denver and for Peyton. And I also don't necessarily think that just plugging in C.J. Anderson means that they're going to have a 1,500-yard back next year. Uh, So I'm going to say they're going to go under 10.5. All right, give me one more. Um, Let's see here. You know, I don't want to go to step anywhere near anything. You, so you, you look, you look, and I'm and I'm going to lay it all out again. It's hell to the Redskins, Gibbs, the Diesel, the Hogs, and the glory days of DC's football dynasty. It's available in hardcover in bookstores on September 1st. Uh, it is available for pre-order at 13.99 right now on Amazon, which is a great deal. Uh, it's also available in Kindle. Is it on iTunes as well? Can you order it in the uh, for Apple? I, I think it will. I think you can pre-order it. I don't think, yeah, I think right, you can right, download yeah. it. I think yeah. it is available. Yeah. Oh, okay, so you can look on iTunes as well. Um, and you can follow Adam on Twitter. He's at L-A-Z-A-R-U-S-A-57. Um, and uh, anything else about like promoting the book? I'm sure you're going to be just about everywhere soon, right? Yeah, in, um, if there's anybody in D.C. listening to this, doing some media, we're having a a book signing and sort of a Q&A with some some Redskins from the book are going to be there uh, September 17th. You can check out my website or Twitter. You'll see all the details there. It's going to be in Arlington on the 17th. Um, so doing a little bit of media. Um, yeah, here and there, Just I would just say to look at my uh, Twitter page and you'll catch up with all the, all the media I'm doing uh, for the book, especially starting September 1st when the actual release date is. That's when I do it. Hit up a lot of a lot of radio shows and things like that. So you got the Steelers over, the Jags over, Denver under, and what's your fourth one? One more. I, I can't. I almost. I mean, uh, I'll eat my words. I'm sure. But I'm looking at seven and a half, seven and a half for the Jets. That's that's borderline laughable in my opinion. I mean, Todd Bowles knows <laughs> what he's doing, but uh, they've got all kinds of problems. Um, I would I would feel very comfortable about being under seven and a half with the Jets. <laughs> I was going to take that too, and then for some reason, the football outsiders are like like the Jets a little bit. So, 
Well, they have. I mean, they have talent on the on the defensive yeah, line. Yeah, I think that's There's what no it doubt is. About I think that's what and it is. And you look at the, what they've done on paper with adding Brandon Marshall and Decker last year, but I just don't see it. I, I don't mean, either. Yeah, I don't. I either. think you know that everyone else in that division is on the rise. Uh, the new coaching staff, you know, they've got clearly they've got some problems under center. Um, I don't think there's much to hang their hat on there. I mean, I, I certainly could be wrong, but I, I don't see them getting anywhere near 500 in this first year. All right, well, listen, Adam is a good friend of the show. He's hosted the show. He's appeared uh, to promote his last book. Uh, he premiered when Parcells was going, or uh, he didn't premiere. He came on when Parcells was going in the Hall of Fame to talk about his uh, Super Bowl twenty five book. And here he is again with Hail to the Redskins. He's a great friend of the podcast. If you're a fan of it, you should definitely check uh, out his new book, Hell to the Redskins. And um, he's a great football mind. He, he played football. He may or may not have named a son after one of his favorite football players. Um, no, we don't, we, don't, we don't acknowledge that. Right, may or may not have. I don't know if you did or not. I just noticed a possible coincidence. Um, and uh, look, at, I'm about eight chapters in, and I'm really enjoying it. So please check it out. Adam, thanks for all the time. Uh, and... Uh, have fun promoting this thing, and I'm sure we'll talk uh, as the football season uh, rolls on here. I will. Thanks a lot for having me, and anytime you want me on, just, just let me know. All right, I want to thank Aaron Schatz and Adam Lazarus for being on the podcast. I want to thank David Shoemaker, the masked man, for maybe being on the podcast, or if not, just for being a good friend of ours. <laughs> sure. You can find this podcast and all of our podcasts, including last week's, with Lana Berry and Brian Curtis from Grantland, on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com, as many of you did uh, last week. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. That's our way of... Uh Testing. Yeah. You can Hope. find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters and Don is at Don Lake Sports. Hopefully everything works this week. Pray for us. Yeah, no kidding. All right, my last thing this week, I don't know if I went first last week, but either way, uh community effort here is I went to the fair this week and the Erie County Fair. Yeah. It's one of the bigger ones across yeah, I heard the nation. Third largest, yeah. maybe something like that. I enjoy the fair and I, I don't know why it's hard to put my fingers on it. Like I don't not because of its value. No. It's not exactly cheap. No, it's not cheap, but... Uh, it's about 10 bucks to get into the place, right? Yeah, it's about 10 bucks unless you go like on a certain days. And yeah, which like, we did this year. So I went as well this year. Okay, so it's like the $2. We, it was $4. It was Channel 4 day. It was $4, $4 each okay. to get in. Yeah, $4 to park, too. Yeah, I, I, I was looking at my Time Hop or Facebook thing, and like like in 2012, I got one of my messages said, going to the fair for the first time in a long time. And like since then, I've gone every single year. It's kind of a thing my mom and sister and we do with the kids. I do it every year. Yeah. yeah. I don't overly enjoy farm animals. I don't overly enjoy standing out in the middle of the heat where there's like no shade to be found. But I don't know. I dig the fair for some reason. Yeah. If the fair has a flaw, it's that it doesn't change. Yeah. But that could also be... A strength in the sense that for this amount of entertainment dollar, yep. you can get animals and rides and midways and food and buildings with people selling stuff. And 
and everyone has like their things they need to do at the fair. Like there's a beef jerky stand in the main building that right. I get a piece of jerky from every year. Okay. You know, and Tammy and I like to go on the Ferris wheel just okay. to take a look at the fair from above it. And, you know, is the food your thing at all? Like, I mean, you said the beef jerky, but yeah, we love to, I mean, you, you go and eat something that you normally don't eat there. Right. I haven't done this in the past, but this year I went like on their website, they had like a new food showcase and I ended up for lunch getting the, uh, it was like stuffed Texas toast, which is like pulled pork, Texas toast, cheese, good stuff, pickles, all that. And, uh, fried cookie dough, my sister said was a, was a thing to get. So we went and got that. That was awesome. Actually. The fried cookie dough was a, Big hit. Yeah, and they got the fried Oreos. I mean, it's stuff you wouldn't eat, right? On because it's Tuesday. It's stuff you eat because you're at the fair. It is a weird crowd that it attracts. I don't. I don't know what that comes. Oh, it, from. it runs the gamut. Yeah, I mean, it's all demographics of Western New York. Oh yeah, it's like there used to be a flea market here that was like a fairly dirty, grimy yeah. flea market. Uh, if you had Large, something to so. go for, huge, yeah, not like your nice. Uh, farmer's garden market no. type thing. But this is kind of like the fair is like a bigger version of that to me. And uh, How does your daughter like it? She digs the animals. Uh, we didn't end up doing any rides. She wanted to do some rides. She let us leave without buying anything ridiculous. Like actually nobody took anything home, which was a small miracle. Like we, She didn't want to go on one ride, huh? She did. She didn't uh, want to go on rides. We just ran out of time and her brother was getting cranky. He's He ruins things for he's her. He's still a little early for the fair. He's not quite in the yeah, he's ten months old. Yeah. He did stand unassisted for the first time while <laughs> eating fried cheesecake or fried. That'll get you on your feet. Yeah, he yeah. was pumped about it, so he just he let go, and Michelle, my wife, freaked out. She's like, "Oh my god, oh my god!" And he was just sitting there standing. So <laughs> that was uh <laughs> You know, it's a weird thing about having a kid that I'm going to have to find out. I see this on Facebook all the time. Yeah, so people will talk about how proud of their kid they are for the most. Common activities. Right, like it'd be weird if he never stood. Like, yeah, people were like, I'm so proud of my son. He crawled today. <laughs> and I was like thinking, well, is your son a paraplegic or yeah, yeah, pro- is he just a normal kid? I mean, like, why are you so proud of him? Proud is a weird word. Uh, but you see, do you see this as well? I, yeah, I have. I, I think it's cool. Like, excitement is a word. And all of that is misguided, too, because if, if you have your first kid, like, you yeah, can't wait like, for it to crawl. And then once it does, you're like, like, oh, God my damn, God, you got chases. Yeah, everywhere. Right? everywhere. It's like a dog that doesn't listen. Uh, we often talk about my list on my phone of potential one last things topic. Okay. And I really went back and forth on a couple this week because they're right in my wheelhouse. Howard Stern and the Karate Kid. Yep. Right? Absolutely. We'll go Howard Stern this week because I think this story has a little less legs than the Karate Kid. There's a viral video out there of the Karate Kid that explains why Daniel Sun is really the villain in the movie. Okay, so that can be so watch that, yeah, because yeah, that'll probably be my one last thing next week. In the meantime, Howard Stern showed up on Page Six's website today. Page Six is sort of the gossipy, seedy part of the New York Post it, in New York City. Oh, okay. I'm thinking, what is the one in England that has like? Is it also Page Six that has like maybe the, the boobs a lot? Right. Yeah. But this is specifically from NewYorkPost.com. New gotcha. Uh, it's written by a guy named Richard Johnson who says he's going to introduce us to the women, the woman responsible for Howard Stern's quote-unquote PC behavior. Now, when you see that headline, you think, well, he's got to mean Beth. Beth, is his wife, has been widely criticized as a person who, as he puts it, uh, old whack packers have disappeared, loyal staffers have been booted, uh, and often the reason for this, as cited, has been 
Beth. Yeah, that was my first guess when right. you mentioned this. And my second guess, I guess, would be Robin. According to this, it's the chief operating officer of the Stern Channels on XM Radio. Her name is Marcy Turk. Okay. She's in her 30s, and she's a hot redhead, said one time a one longtime insider. Out of nowhere, she was given the title of CEO, COO. That was Tim Sabian's job when the stations launched. He was whacked. Uh, and has had a very strong hand on the show, how the show is handled, and how everyone has to, quote-unquote, keep Howard's brand right. Uh, Stern is a judge on America's Got Talent, it's mentioned. It also mentions how over the past three years, uh, Gary the Retired has been renamed Gary the Conqueror, which I thought was so ridiculous at the time. Um, Howard's become a big supporter of gay rights, which is fine, but... He know he does things like he no longer makes a lispy voice in segments like the Homo Room. I would go farther to say he never even does the Homo Room. Okay, um, which I, I don't mean, remember that. You don't have segment. to be against gay rights to kind of joke a bit. I don't know, but that joking. Yeah, that's the pendulum that's swinging not very far. There anymore, right? Um, a Turk who never goes on air, as his previous bosses did has also allegedly banned guests like Lisa Lampanelli, Gilbert Godfrey, and Craig Gass. Wow. Um, wow, that, that's shocking There's me. more. Hold on, there's okay. more. Supposedly, Turk and Stern are said to be devotees of David Allen's book, Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity, which is really interesting because there's no more neurotic and stressed person than Howard Stern. <laughs> so this book is not working for him. He right. went on and on today about how he's having panic attacks uh, and cited the fact that his therapist is off in august um it's almost a scientology type thing and looking at stern is their tom cruise um and also now this is the big kind of get of the story this is true it says that she's persuaded howard to take the show to itunes pandora or spotify when his contract expires in december if they can get 1 million subscribers which doesn't sound that outrageous for the power of howard stern i wouldn't think so they get 1 million subscribers, all paying $12 a month. They're looking at $144 million a year, with Howard pocketing 85 to $100 million after overhead. Which seems a little high to me because... Spotify has to make something, employees and have to make something. someone's got to pay the employees. I mean, right. they have some high pay... Baba Booey, Robin, and... Are all millionaires. They're all millionaires, and yeah. Fred are all millionaire employees, but... Uh, we'll Unless see. Unless she's talking about him just abandoning them. I don't know. What do you think about all this? Um, I don't know. Uh, I've never heard of this person before. I know I used to listen to uh, uh, Opie and Anthony a little bit more, and I don't remember her name. Now, Anthony talked about this on his show. Okay. And one of Anthony's employees is a guy named Garrett who he plucked from Serious. Serious. Garrett sort of was describing her as this person that looks sort of through you when she looked at you, like real glassy eyes and sort of weird and okay. not overly nice or warm, which I don't know. sounds about right to me without knowing her. It just seems like the the person who would be in charge of Howard. Now, I just searched her name, Marcy Turk, and funny enough, someone posted on Reddit two years ago that this Marcy Tick, or Turk – is pretty much the Yoko Ono of the Stern Show. Yep, and now Richard Johnson's doubling down on that. It says, hired the morning after the double booking, whatever that is. But, uh, yeah, my my guess would have been, like I said, that if someone 
was the cause of his change, it would have been Beth. Uh, I said Robin, but that's a that was a dumb thing to say because I mean she's been there all right. along, and she's out of it, dude. Or I would. Oh, really? She's she's there, but like she puts no effort into her job. It's just riding out the wave. Yeah, dude. She's but, just uh, waking in the dough right So that was a dumb guess. The other, I mean, the obvious other guess would be ABC or right is NBC. Still, NBC. Oh, he's leaving. Oh, is he? Yeah, then I I don't know. Maybe there's something to this. I don't know who she is, but uh Well, we're all gonna be watching by all I mean listeners of Howard. Sure. And people in media to see what his next step is. Where does the Howard Stern program end up in yeah, December? I mean, Corolla making an empire, Mark Marin making an empire and I've always more. said he should have done his own thing ten years ago, but maybe the technology isn't there. The interesting decision this year is at sixty two does he have the energy to launch his own thing? But I mean, uh, or wait, is it just so easy yeah. to take the twenty-five million from Sirius for five more years? He only has to do three days a week at yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, twenty-five million essentially for one hundred and ten shows a year, and they worry about everything else, right? Paying the other people, providing other content. Right. Are they going to get twelve dollars a month from people? For just the Howard Stern show, or does he need to create other content? Well, that's what I was going to say about. And Corolla. how is he going to do that? Corolla has a studio, but he busts his ass and does like four podcasts. And Corolla's the right age, sure, the right ambition, right. the right circumstances. Howard Stern is close to being a billionaire. I just feel like the second Howard says, "I'm doing a podcast," it's the biggest podcast in the world. Like, sorry, Corolla, for all the work you put in, and Jay Moore for all the work you put in, but. This is Howard Stern. And Howard Stern hates podcasts, by the way. Well, yeah, now, he hates right. a lot of things until he's doing it. Right. He hates right? It You know what I mean? But, right. um, yeah, it's about five months away from finding out what happens to the Howard Stern show. 